with the first pick in the 2012 NFL Draft, the Indianapolis Colts select Andrew Luck, quarterback, Stanford. And there we go. He's going to hang up with his boss and hug his mom. I bet I could really confuse our listeners even more if I said, what's up, Football Nation, right now. Because <laughs> you know our diehard listeners who listen to both podcasts are like, wait a minute, did I just start the Football Nation podcast over again? Or No, you haven't. This is uh, Season 2, Episode 17 of the Sportscasters proper. It's May 1st, 2012. We're in Buffalo, New York. My name is Steve Bennett, and my co-host is Don Russ. How you doing, Don? Great. Uh, we uh, have a great show for you today on the podcast, one of our favorite guest Richard Deitch right off the top we'll get to Richard will be on our first guest also kind of maybe one of our more underrated guests one of the best writers out there Matt Crossman from Sporting News is going to be on talk about a really interesting story that he covered for the NFL draft and we're going to close out with something different which I'm really excited about and that's an interview with Dave Meltzer who is one of the top UFC and professional wrestling writers out there and he's going to be on the show uh, today couple other things don't forget last week season two episode 16 we had our buddy tass on also mark titus uh alex belf and adam rank you can find that at our website www.sports-casters.com itunes and don have you noticed stitcher radio has woken up and realized the sportscasters are there and we're really good and it's worthwhile to like tell people about us did you notice this i didn't know what happened well someone had asked me a listener, I think, had asked me what my thoughts were on Stitcher. And I just basically responded to them and said, it sucks. They don't pay any attention to us. And we've had, I don't think he would mind us saying this either, but I think it was Dave Damashek that told us. Right, to stay away from Stay him. away from him, yep. So I basically just tweeted back to him, you know, we've had a bad experience so far. Well, out of the blue, a girl named Rachel emails me and says, I saw your tweet today. I think she just did a search of like Stitcher, Stitcher. and hashtag what, Stitcher. What can I do to make your experience better? So I said, well, first of all, you can acknowledge us. <laughs> I said, pretty much every episode that's ever come out since we've been a member of Stitcher, we've put that at Stitcher Radio on there, and we never get a retweet. So we got one, and that was the truth. So she's been retweeting us pretty much anytime I put it on, which is nice. And also, they bumped us up to basically like. We're about the 15th podcast. Under sports? Under sports, wow. news, and information shows or something. Nice. So it's like BS Report. There's like the top seven. Then you ha- got to re- you gotta say more. And then you say one more, more, one more time, and we're on the third page. So they've done a lot for us, and i got to thank them for that in the last couple of weeks. Also, don't forget to check out our other podcasts, which we do with Cold Hard Football Facts and Football Nation. This week we have Doug Farrar, who is the Greg Wyshynski of football on Yahoo Sports. Yeah. So that's a really, really cool thing, and you can find that at www.footballnation.com. All right, let's get this show started so we can get to all these great guests, and we always do it with three things. Let's play a game. All right. Mm-hmm. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever! <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep! Now let's move on to other business. 
Our first piece of business this week, because we really don't have a better place to put it, is uh, just kind of generally about the NHL playoffs. Into round two here. Yeah, we're just into the second round, and uh, man, am I struggling to pick pick these playoffs. I like Nashville. They're already down 2 nothing to Phoenix. Uh, Los Angeles is beating a team that was competing for the President's Trophy for a while this year, 2 to nothing. Los Angeles might be the most complete team in the playoffs. Doesn't it feel like those Western Conference series are done? Just yeah, seems it sure like, does. It just seems like it's going to be really difficult for the Blues to beat quick four out of five, whatever they're going to have to do now. They're going to have to win four out of five. Yeah, That's going to be really tough. And it just seems like Phoenix has been so much better than Nashville. And now Nashville isn't going to have two of their best offensive players because they suspended uh, Kostitsin and Radulov for game three for breaking uh, unspecified team rule. So that, that, That's got to be something major. Yeah, I mean, they, they had to break one hell of a rule if the team's willing to say, you're not welcome here when we're down two to nothing. Backs against the wall. Biggest game of the year, basically. They're saying, we'd rather not have you. Yeah, the Eastern teams have been a little bit more tight. The Rangers and Capitals are I think that's going to be a long series. That, it, it sure looks like it could be. And you know what? I think you said L.A. might be the best team, most complete team in the playoffs. You might be right. If they're not, it might be Philly. It, right. Still, Philly's the like, obviously the goaltending is the question Philly. because even in their wins, it seems like he's letting in a weak goal. At least one every game. And the broadcast did a good job after the last game of showing how good Brizgalov was in the first period where Philly gave up something like 14 shots. Yeah, I think and they only just, had two or and something. And just how bad he was for the rest of the game. Uh, He's weird. Very, He's really weird. Very Hard to get a read goaltending. Yeah, something about that just goaltending in, in a Philadelphia system. It just doesn't work, it seems like. But if I had a – okay, if someone said, all right, chance number two, pick, these, pick the conference finals, I think I would say it's going to be L.A., and Phoenix, and I think it's going to be the Rangers and the Flyers. But I think that the Rangers and Capitals can go either way. I think that's going to be super tight. But you know what? I said this about the Senators series. I just think the way the Rangers play is dangerous. It leads you to that. Sometimes you're going to lose the game instead of winning it that way. And, you know, um, the other night, Ovi didn't play a lot, but he got out there during a power play, and he, he scored a goal. He could do that any time. You know, he can shoot and score from anywhere better than maybe anyone in the league. Yeah, I can't remember who I picked. It might have been Washington for that reason. It's just because New York plays too tight, and Washington has a lot of guys. Like, uh, I remember Simmons specifically in a few Sabres games. Like, he, he's invisible all game, and then he'll just snipe one on you. And they've got a few guys that can do that over there. New York really doesn't. I just think ultimately, though, I, I'm just going to take Longquist over Hopi. Yeah. Especially because I think if they play a game seven. You're going to see that advantage. You know, like in the Ottawa series, there was a game that Lundqvist stole. I think it was game two. And then Ottawa's goalie stole one right back. But then in game seven, you just felt it. Like, Lundqvist is going to win this game. Right. And I think if they if they get into that situation again, I think it favors them. But I wouldn't be surprised if Washington won it. So I think the East is really interesting still. I'm not ready to even write off New Jersey necessarily. I think that's really that interesting. A tight game. But I think the other conference is just it's dead to me. I think it's just done. I, I don't I don't see I don't see it. Maybe Nashville can rebound, but if they lose game three because they don't have Radulov and Constitin and 
then what? I mean, they're not going to win four in a row, are they? No, I don't think so. And if you're running the NHL, you couldn't have drawn it up too much better. You'd probably rather have Boston in there than Washington playing. They would love to have LA versus Philly, Philly or, or New, New York. York. They would love yeah, that. Even Washington would probably be okay. Sure. I think if they can get any of those three teams versus LA, they'll be pumped about that. Yep. So, so. good for the NHL. It's been a good playoffs. All right. My first thing is kind of a similar angle that Don took, and that's just that while the NHL is into round one, the NBA, or round two, the NBA is now a couple games into round one. And basically what I've noticed about the NBA playoffs so far is what I normally notice about the NBA playoffs, and that is in round one you really see a big difference between the top four teams and the bottom four teams in each conference. I think with the exception of um, a five-seed winning a game and a six-seed winning a game, it's been all home teams to win. You know, it's been the – but there's some big things. One, one game into it, uh, Derrick Rose is out yeah. for the year for the Bulls. So they don't seem like a team that can challenge Miami anymore who's looked really good, winning two games already over the Knicks. And now the Knicks are going to be without Amari Stoudemire in game three because he went and got pissed off and punched a fire hydrant last night and had to leave the arena with his hand all bandaged up. So he's not going to be available. Um, looks like Oklahoma City's going to do away with Dallas uh, pretty quickly. So it's off to what I expected it to be, where these top teams in the NBA usually don't get challenged right. by the bottom teams. And we talked about that a little. Round. We talked about that a little bit last week, contrasting it with the NHL playoffs, where maybe depending on how you look at it, it might be a problem with the NHL because you've got 16 teams making the playoffs, and really any of them have a decent shot at winning. Basketball, you have the same number, but really the the bottom seeds have never really done anything yeah and that and but when they do happen it's like that's why you remember him forever you remember the Dikembe Mutombo team beating the Sonics and him holding the ball under the basket right right you know it's like those huge those upsets are so huge it's like you remember them because they happen so much more less than in in the uh in the NHL so but it looks like there's going to be a lot of chalk you know it's like San Antonio's up one nothing on Utah Oklahoma's up Two nothing on Dallas. You know the Lakers are up one nothing on Denver. Um, two nothing for Miami. You know so, but uh, Orlando got a game and a split in Indiana, so that series could be really interesting. And I think the four fives in both conferences are really interesting. The Clippers in Memphis. That's another really interesting story. The Clippers finished on a twenty eight to three run last nine minutes of the game to yeah. win their game one of that series against Memphis. So, all right, my next thing. Uh, I'm going to switch up what I was going to do here, but. Wired.com, uh, not usually a site we talk about here because they don't do a ton of sports-related no. stuff, but they had this really awesome article if you're into like nerdy stats about sports. And they did this guy, let me get his name here. His the guy from Wired. Muthu Elagapin. Oh, my goodness. He's from Stanford University, and he wrote basically a uh, dissertation. And you can download the PDF. It's like 28 pages long, and it's complete with like graphs and but it's like really cool stuff that says basketball doesn't have five positions. He did analytics that reveals there's 13 positions and he breaks down these different positions and he, it's almost a little bit of uh, Moneyball money ball here because there's players out there that he discovered don't make a lot of money, but have a lot of value. And the positions he came up with are offensive ball handler uh, guys like Jason Terry, Tony Parker, defensive ball handler guys like Mike Conley, Kyle Lowry combo ball handler, John, guys like John wall, Shooting ball handler, Manu Ginobili. Uh, Role-playing ball handler, Rudy Fernandez. Aaron Eflel. Eflel. 
Uh, Three-point rebounder, uh, guys like Chase Buttinger. Scoring rebounder, Dirk Nowitzki. Uh, paint protector, these are guys, big man like Marcus Camby, known more for blocking shots and getting rebounds. But So it's NBA Moneyball stuff. Advanced stats. Pretty much. And yeah. if you – he has these – analytics that show these graphics that put guys in these different things. And there's one-of-a-kind guys, guys like Derrick Rose and Dwight Howard that uh, really don't fit in any of the other categories. But then they showed how like the 2010-11 Dallas Mavericks stacked up. And they have guys from each of these positions. And they're all over like these charts. And it's, it's hard to explain without looking at it. But really, check it out. I haven't read through the whole 28-page thing yet, but I am going to download it and check it out because it's just really, really cool. And it shows how underrated certain guys are. Uh, I got to say this. If you're this excited about an NBA article, this is good. Yeah, because I'm not a big NBA guy. You're not a big NBA guy. Okay, here's an example they give. Lesser-known players like Marie Spites of the Memphis Grizzlies and Lakers' Devin Ebanks produce statistically similar per-minute results than guys like... Nowitzki and Paul Gasol. Uh, even better, where Carmelo Anthony's salary averages about eighteen point five million, the Lakers are paying Ebanks seven hundred and forty thousand dollars a year. Wow! So he'll they'll compare players that do similar things. He took the stats of like rebounding and scoring and all this stuff and lumped them together. It's really cool. It's hard to explain, but uh, the Stanford University kid did a did a nice job of breaking this all down. And Wired's a cool magazine, by the way. Yeah, Wired is cool. They have a lot of cool shit in there. All right, my number two thing this week is uh, the calendar is switched from April to May, which means the end of the first month of the baseball season. May Day. And I think the number one story uh, has to be the fact that April is over and the number one free agent last year has zero home runs and is hitting about 215, and that's Albert Pujols. Albert Pujols has 10 years left on an enormous <laughs> contract. And it, we're going to talk about this with Matt Crossman a little bit later, but it's really interesting to try to decide – is this decline, or is it a just, week went by and he didn't have just one, slumping. and he got a little bit tighter, and then two weeks got by, and he got even tighter, and now it's like he just needs to hit one, and then they can start to come. So it's interesting. To, it's going to be interesting to see as because we've seen some big players have really bad Aprils in the past. How many times have we wanted to write off David Ortiz because he's hitting 188 in April, and then he still finishes with 30 home runs and 100 RBIs? Even a guy like. Uh Derek Jeter had a pretty severe drop-off last year. Yeah, People right, wrote him off. And, uh, right, basically, right up until he got his 3,000th hit, he wasn't the same player. Right. Then he became Derek Jeter again, and he's having a great start this yep. season. He's having one of the best he one of the best Aprils he's ever had. So it's important from April to May not to overreact to this stuff that happened in baseball, but also to take note because it's starting to get to a point where stuff is turning into a trend. You know, and early gets late quick sometimes. Yeah. So be interested to see how Pujols ends up at the end of the year because couldn't be worse, and Artie Moreno can't be happy when he writes that check every week <laughs> and there's still no home runs. I'm sure someone's done the breakdown on all the hits and what he's getting paid per hit. And it's enormous right yeah. now. I saw on uh, Reddit, I do a lot of Reddit.com, I do a lot of my research for the show and show prep on there. Someone did a uh, picture from the episode of The Simpsons where they have the no homers club, and they're like, but there's the one homer in there. Well, the guy in the No Homers Club is uh, Albert Pujols. Someone made a picture of him that's sticking one, his head out. That's one of the best Simpsons ever, by the way, the No Homers Club. <laughs> I love that. All right, uh, switching gears here. My last thing is a bit of a sad note here. Nor- this Dale Owen 
one of Norway's biggest medal hopes for the London Olympics. He's a swimmer. Died suddenly of a heart attack uh, during pre-Olympic training camp uh, today, I believe. Uh, That's awful. Yeah, and look, it's always sad when a guy dies. It doesn't matter how it happens or what, but this guy was on the top of the world championship. Obviously, we don't we miss this. We don't talk about swimming much when it's not the Olympic time, but he stood on top of the world championship podium a year ago, wiping tears away as the Norwegian national anthem played in triumph against triumph again just three days after the country was rocked by a massacre by a right-wing extremist. Ooh. So this story about him winning and the, I don't remember the story about the uh, the massacre, but he had become kind of like a a shining symbol in an otherwise negative time for these guys, and he passed away unexpectedly today. So for Norway and the swimming world and his family and whoever else uh, that may have known him, uh, our condolences for his sudden sudden passing. That's really sad. You know, you bring up an interesting point, though. It's going to be interesting to see what we do, Don, in terms of the Olympics on this show because it's going to be the biggest thing this summer, but we're only going to have really two shows while the Olympics are going on. You know, because it's so it, quick. It, yeah. it don't happen so quick, but yes. Yeah, spoiler alert: we we talked to Richard Deitch about the effect of Twitter, and Twitter feels like it's been here forever, but it really wasn't what it was during the last election. And we kind of talked to him about that a little bit. But same thing with with our show. Our show feels like it's been here for a while, but we haven't had an Olympics with our show yet. Right. So, and we do have a really good connection with Tim Layden, yeah, who's you know one of the best guys in terms of covering this stuff so we'll definitely it'll be, it'll be fun it'll be it'll be a busy time during a time that would otherwise be kind of slow which we totally invite sure all right uh last thing on three things today and that is a kind of a follow-up of a story that don brought up a few weeks ago and that was with this announcement of the dodgers two billion dollar sale and would they get the money they got the money uh <laughs> the guggenheim baseball management group that includes uh former los angeles lakers star magic johnson officially owns the L.A. Dodgers. The sale is finalized today, ending the tumultuous era under former owner Frank McCourt. Thank took God. the team into bankruptcy and made his private life public through a nasty divorce battle with his ex-wife. Reading this from ESPNLA.com was a great article about this. But the sale is official. Uh, so that's it. Yeah, collective yeah. sigh of relief coming out of L.A. They started their season pretty well. So uh, yeah, now you know, they got that part out of the way. And what an awesome night. The best night of the baseball season so far this year was in L.A. Just a couple of nights ago. It was the debut of megastar Bryce Harper, Washington Nationals, and current megastar Matt Kemp of the Dodgers won the game with a walk-off home run. I haven't heard a baseball stadium that loud in April maybe ever. It was awesome. He knew it was gone the second he hit it. He had a great home run trot, great celebration after. It's just awesome. Matt Kemp is awesome. If you haven't gotten a chance to watch him, I, have not. I think Major League Baseball – Really needs to concentrate on how they market this guy. He's one. Of, he might be one of the last great African American baseball players, unless they market this guy in such a way that he can influence usher in a new, you know, era the new kids, era right. of African American ball players. Because there's no no hiding the fact that baseball's had a really tough time in the inner cities. No, they know the it, last right? you know 15 years or so. You know, since maybe the Dwight Gooden, Daryl Strawberry, Eric Davis. That kind of group that came out of South, South Central Los Angeles. For a game that doesn't seem expensive, 
you need a lot of stuff. You need a lot of people. Yep. You need bats. You need gloves. You need balls. You need a field. You need, you need a field. Bases, you yep. need bases. Right. So yeah. It's and you it. need space to be able to hit that ball. Yep. You know what I mean? And it's look it. It's really easy to pick up a basketball and shoot it in a hoop at or the park or even at, you know. And soccer's easy and you know. But baseball has a chance now to capitalize on this because they have an amazing star. The kid's awesome. He's really fun to watch. He's got a great personality. Is he dating Rihanna? I looked him up, and I see a lot of Rihanna. Uh, I don't know who he dates, to be honest. Uh, but easily he could be. I know he's batting over 400. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, he's just he's incredible. Yeah, I believe he's dating Rihanna. So, I mean, an- another – say, say what you will about the, her. But, I mean, it's in the limelight. You got a guy. You got a star. Market him. Yeah, absolutely. Don't blow this baseball. All right. That's going to do it for three things. And uh, – we are going to take a break and come back with one of our favorites, Richard Deitch from Sports Illustrated and SportsIllustrated.com. Our next guest is a graduate of the University of Buffalo. He got his master's degree at Columbia University in the city of New York and then went on to spend one year as a Knights Wallace Fellow at Michigan. He is the author of a number of children's books and has contributed to numerous newspapers and magazines. Currently, he writes for Sports Illustrated and SI.com, covering all things media, the Olympics, tennis, and women's basketball. His Twitter feed is one of the most followed and appreciated in the sports media. He's making his sixth appearance on the Sportscasters today. A warm welcome to the great Richard Deitch. How are you doing today, Richard? Well, you say the great Richard Dutch. It's very first of all, it's very Mike and Mike of you, basically, which means every, everybody basically is a great guest, no matter what. That's one. Two, um, I still see you using the intro um, that I probably have from like 1993. Uh, although I will say you add, you've added the Twitter stuff, which is obviously 2011, 2012. Right. So that's good. That's a nice little change up. But uh, you know, continually, you you guys are going back to the. Uh, the old school intro. It's almost like uh, Chris Webber is still playing for the Fab Five back then. <laughs> the other thing, too, is, and let me just finish this so people don't think I'm a total idiot. I could care less if you give me any kind of intro. And the next time I'm on your show, in fact, I don't want a laundry list of what or what I haven't done. Okay. Just say, like, this is the seventh time this guy's been on the show. He works for Sports Illustrated and SI.com. Here's Richard Dunn. So that's fine. You okay. don't need to, you know what I'm saying? You do not, I'm not Lee Jenkins. You don't need to say <laughs> everything that I've done in my history. You know what I'm saying? I know you guys right. like that, but right. but I'm a different cat here. I do not need – I don't need the love. I just need uh, – give me a quick intro and let's go. Okay. We'll do that. By the way, yeah. and uh, thank you for having me on. All right. Yeah, <laughs> thanks. Uh, <laughs> um, so, draft, 3,000 words. Um, I really enjoyed what you wrote uh, after the draft and before the draft, actually. Uh, and let's start here. I thought it was really interesting – uh, what Adam Schefter had to say about why he had tweeted his uh, the picks on Twitter. What did you think about how things went in terms of the broadcast shying away from spoiling the picks this year? And what did you think of Twitter's role in the draft and how it always seemed like Twitter was ahead of the television? Yeah, that's a good, those are good questions, and I'm with you. I, I totally found it really interesting how Schefter approached this because um, – one, he has the most followers by far of any NFL media person, and he has it by a lot. I mean, I think he's, you know, he's rolling close to 1.5. I mean, he's probably be at two million followers one day, which is kind of incredible if you think about it for a for an NFL reporter. Um, Kardashian territory. Yeah, well, maybe, 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 maybe Rob, not Kim. Uh, but uh, yeah, you know. Um, 
So these are really two different questions. One, I thought the I thought the networks did a pretty good job of not telegraphing the picks as much as they have in the past. They um, they lived up to their agreement for the most part not to show cameras in the green room, and I think that's generally a good thing. Um, you know, I think you got to try to make the draft as suspenseful as you can for those watching it. Where things have really changed, and I can tell you both networks are thinking about this, and everybody really has to think about this, is that you don't watch the draft anymore if you're a sports fan basically just on TV. You're watching it with your computer or your phone or your tablet or whatever. And so the fact is, it's, it's almost, I wouldn't say it's impossible, but it's very hard not to kind of know what's happening often before the picks are coming. And if you're on Twitter, and if you follow the right feed, whether it's a team feed or Adam Schefter or, you know, the agent of one of these guys or the player himself. Yeah, yeah, I mean, exactly. Or, yeah, right, or an owner of the Seahawks. I mean, like, picks are tipped now. So I don't really know what the answer is. I I just think that, like, um, I think think you're going to learn stuff, especially if you're on Twitter, during the draft. And the other thing is, and I know a lot of my readers disagree with me here, but I sort of got to, I got to tell you straight how I feel. I have no problem with Schefter tweeting out information um, in the same, or Lock on Fora or Peter King or any of these guys. I mean, they're reporters and they get paid to report information. And I don't think they should be um, thinking about the TV production and how it affects it if they're tweeting out too many things. That said, I can tell you both Lock on Fora uh, and Schefter were told by, you know, and were talked to by their own executives to say, hey, you know, we just want you to know that there are people complaining about this and, right. you know, maybe maybe you shouldn't do pick by pick. Maybe you should only do the interesting stuff. So it's a really, it's a really interesting question, um, and it's going to continue to come up year after year. My guess is Twitter is just going to continue to get bigger. Um, and I, I think if you're a fan of Twitter or a fan of social media, I just think you have to realize that this is going to be part of your world, that you're going to learn these picks before Roger Goodell says them. If you're really that bothered by it, can't you put your phone down? You, I, I, I mean, that's logical, and, and, and I think that's a smart take, but I'm also realistic in that, um, and especially got people your age, I, I don't think people under the age of 30 or 25 generally can do that and be disconnected from those devices. And that, that, that's not a knock on them. It's just, I think that's just how you watch TV. I think that's, you know, and I do it myself. Uh, I, I, it's very rare for me anymore to watch a sporting event without having either, like, uh, my phone or my laptop near me because I like to see what people are saying on Twitter or Facebook. I like to read, like, stories about somebody if uh, something cool comes up. I mean, I think that's... You know, I think that's sort of just part of where we are, but you're totally right. I mean, the, the, the real solution is turn off Twitter, turn off your computer, just watch the TV straight, and you, you will, you know, it'll be a reality, sh- reality show for you. You won't, be, you won't be surprised. I think that— Or you will—I should say you will be surprised. You know, it's kind of like, though, you get to have a, a party for every game without pissing the wife off, you know? It's like you get to open your door to all these people who weren't going to come over anyway, but <laughs> you can get them to come over to your house on Twitter, you know, like— Day 162 of the baseball season last year when everything was going down and the, the playoffs were changing by the second. It was so cool to watch that kind of play out with everybody and get to hear people's reactions. And I think that's the the appeal and why we don't want to put down the tablet, you know, because it's so cool to get all the different opinions. And you don't get to usually watch a game with Jim Rome or Adam Schefter, but, you know, you turn Twitter on and you get to see what they're thinking, what they're they're doing in the moment. I'm with you. I, I agree with you a thousand percent. 
which bothers me, I will say, because <laughs> I don't like to agree with the sportscasters all the time. Uh, no, you're totally right. The fact is, it like I think it enhances the experience fiftyfold. Um, that you can get like a, uh, um, you know, if you're a college basketball fan, um, you know, you can get uh, Jeff Goodman or Luke Wayne or um, uh, Seth Davis or people. Yeah, yeah, right. All those guys. Like, that's pretty interesting to me. You know, Dana O'Neill, like, I, I, Pat Forty, I like that. I, I like that adds something to me. I, I, you know, my my feed, I don't just follow sports people. I follow news people. And it's really interesting, like, you know, on, like, an election night or something like that to have, you know, New York Times and Washington Post reporters coming down and giving you their take. I mean, if it's the Academy Awards, it, you know, there's somebody I follow who's an AP movie reviewer, Christine Lemaire, who's just got, like, amazing insight into, like, the Oscars. So, like, I, I'm with you. It totally enhances the experience. I think this is one fact factor when it comes to the draft that one of the, you know, the one of the few downsides of, like, Twitter, in this case, is you are going to learn about things before you see them on TV. But I think the larger thing is worth it. I think the fact that you're right, like you can invite interesting people into your home far outweighs the fact that you may um, learn about a pick before Roger Goodell tells you on TV. All right, I got two things about that. First of all, if you're watching the Oscars, you should be following uh, Norm MacDonald. He's excellent. He's ridiculous. Uh, yeah, listen, I've, I've interviewed uh, <laughs> Norm MacDonald and... Uh, and I like him very much. Guy loves to curse, by the way. Big fan of curse. <laughs> the second thing is uh, maybe Twitter needs to develop some sort of spoiler type thing where you won't see the tweet unless you mouse over it or something like that. So maybe maybe it's on yeah, Twitter I mean, to fix this. Yeah, I mean, I, I, again, I think that would be too ridiculous because it's uh, um, that's sort of playing far. T- you know, that that's basically being dictated by TV. And if you take and if you step a little bit outside of sports or whatever, I think that goes against what the whole principle of Twitter is supposed right. to be: free, open exchange of news and ideas. So I wouldn't, I would absolutely not support that because I think that's that's silly. I mean, we still have free will, and ultimately, you make that decision to either go on a service like Twitter um, or not. Um, but you know, I mean, I, I honestly think that, uh, like a, uh, um, I honestly think that, like, it's not. Um, <laughs> it's not the craziest idea just during the draft. Literally, defollow chefs or lock them. Defollow anybody you think who can give stuff away, and then on the Sunday, follow them again. Sure. Like I feel like that would be an easy solution um, to the problem. And yeah, maybe you sort of find something out crazily. Um, uh, although, you know, the more I think about it, though, if your friends follow Adam Schefter and then they retweet, right. maybe, you're screwed <laughs> yeah. that, maybe you're re-screwed that way, too. So I don't know. I, I, I don't know what the answer is. Other than I think you're going to have to just maybe live with the fact that you're going to learn some of these picks. You know, you mentioned November is going to – I can't wait for November this year with the election and Twitter. It's going to be so cool. You know, hopefully should – be, should, should be very interesting. Yeah, I agree with you. Hopefully it's not such a blowout that there's just no – I, I, I do not think uh, – yeah, I do not think it's going to be a – Blowout. I, I mean, do you want me to get into politics? I feel no, like that's more. No. That's more of a you and Lee Jenkins kind of. I mean, <laughs> Lee seems. Can we tell? First of all, let's forget about talking about me and my opinions. Okay. I mean, enough of this. Right. Let's talk about your. I mean, what? How would you describe your relationship right now with Lee Jenkins? Like, I know he's number. He's basically your number one guest. We we get that. Right. But um, has will it get to the point where like Lee will maybe fly out and do a live show with you guys? Like that yeah. could be. Oh, yeah. That's a ga- to me, that's a game changer. Yeah, I think that'll happen for sure someday. You know, I think it's definitely, there's a little bit of mentoring going on there. And right. I think one thing that separates Lee from other guests is that he'll talk to us 
right before Game 7 of the NBA Finals in his hotel room. Seth Davis won't talk to us at all in March. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> but, Seth Davis, you better call his agent before he talks to you. Yeah, he, he said it would be a fun thing to do after the Final Four, call him that. Yeah, that's, I feel, well, I'm going to call Seth Davis out right now. That's, that, I, think, I feel like he's big-timing Buffalo and the sportscasters, and you can feel free to tweet that out. That, yeah. uh, <laughs> I'm going to try to get I'm going to try to shame Seth into uh, doing an appearance with you guys. But seriously, in all seriousness, I will say it's about Lee Jenkins. The guy is an absolute pro. His I would say in the last 18 months, I'm not sure there's a better sports writer in the country. Although it's very silly to compare writers because we all kind of do different things. But I, I, Lee, I don't think Lee has written a bad piece. And it really, he's never really written a bad piece, but I don't think he's written, maybe I should say, less than a great piece in the last 18 months, especially for the magazine. And that is very, very hard to do. Um, so you are talking about a guy who is really right now, um, I feel like he's just right in his writing prime. He, he just he gives you and delivers you something interesting every time he writes. Um, and he's really turned out to be an amazing hire for SI. I will totally be serious on him for a second. He real, the guy, I, I really have a lot of admiration for the guy. Um, because one of the things I always judge people on, both on TV and in writing, is like, do you cheat the reader or the viewer? That's really, ultimately, everything else is all BS. That's really what it comes down to. Like, did you give the person who's either reading you or watching you, like, full effort? And, like, I can honestly say, Lee Jenkins is a guy who, like, literally time and time again, like, doesn't cheat you. He reports something out. He writes it out. Like, he, he puts in the time. He's not just, you know, he's not just um, uh, showing up, you know, writing a couple of yucks in an 800-word column and then leaving the building. So uh, I do honestly have a lot of respect for... Uh, for for Lee Jenkins, uh, he is uh, he, he's the real deal. Uh, I, I got I got to give I got to give the guy his props. Well, you know Richard Deitch is with us here at Richard Deitch on Twitter, and he teases us because we've had Lee Jenkins on a lot, and we like him a lot. But you know that you're up to number three now in terms of most appearances. It's Lee Jenkins, John Wertheim, and Richard Deitch. Wow, those are, listen, very good company. Worth everything I said about Jenkins, I would say about Wertheim. Uh, I don't need to prop Wertheim up, if, or, you know. I don't think there's any doubt he's the uh, he's the best and most well wired tennis writer in this country. Guy can do write about any sport as well, including MMA. Uh, it's good, man. You know, listen. There's a reason uh, I work at Sports Illustrated, and a big reason of it is because I really like like working with people who are talented. Uh, you know, trust so, me, it's not the free clo- it's not the free clothing and T-shirts I'm getting. If I wanted graft, I'd work for ESPN PR, and then you know maybe I get some uh, I get a Dick Vitale alarm clock. I get the uh, what the the Keith uh, not the Keith the Todd McShay maybe uh, tuxedo jacket and pants. What else would I get? Todd McShay, Chris Fowler, the uh, the Chris Fowler lunchbox, and I probably get a couple gift certificates from Berman and Vital to go to Applebee's and Hooters. Do you get any football phones at SI? Do you get Excuse any, me. Do you get any football phones at SI? Foot, the football phones, I uh, everybody asks that. You know, I've never even <laughs> seen them in the building that I work in in New York. I believe they're like uh, that can't be. We true. ship them from like there. yeah, from like Florida somewhere. <laughs> you from, know, from like some guy's home. When the Saints won the Super Bowl a couple of years ago, when Tracy Porter intercepted that that pass and took it to the end zone, one of the first things right. that came through my mind was, I cannot wait to get the commemorative issue. <laughs> You know, it was uh, well, like, yeah. You know, the one thing is, the uh, we do still do like all those commemorative issues and like uh, you know present like the hardcover stuff, video. It used to be like a T-shirt or a sweatshirt and something else. I don't know if that's still our ad campaign, but uh, 
Yeah, uh, people really dig that. That's and, you awesome. know, it's actually, I, as having worked on many of those commemoratives, um, you're working, like, your butt off, like, the days right before the championship and the days right after, because we, we usually get that thing out, like, 40 hours after the final, uh, you know, the final play of the championship game is, ha- has taken place. All right, last thing, because we're just about out of time with what we agreed yeah, to Yeah, my do. voice is about to and go. Voice and, uh, you know, and, it, uh, and it's not like I've seen a check from the sportscasters once for all my appearances. <laughs> <laughs> we're building our budget for that. Uh, the sports Emmys were last night. Anything stick out to you? Um, say, say no, I missed that first part of it. It, it. For what game? The sports Emmys were given out last night. Oh, the night. sports Emmys. Yeah, anything uh, <laughs> stick out at all to you there? Bob Costas won another uh, Emmy. Well, I'm only laughing because, like, I'll give you my quick philosophy of the sports enemies. Okay. I, I, I'm, I, I like the fact that there are behind-the-scenes people who get, like, recognized by their, boss, by their bosses. And, um, and I think every organization, I mean, every sort of, you know, medium should have its awards, and that's cool. But, um, but that's sort of, I, I don't go to the sports enemies. I really don't probably – I mean, maybe I'll be there one day, but it's certainly not on my list of anything to do. Uh, I find a lot of it to be basically big back slapping of sort of everybody, uh, you know, slaps each other in the back and tells each other how great they are, especially like sort of the on-camera people. Um, so the thing I like best about it is when some really good behind-the-scenes people who get no publicity at all compared to like the Skip Baylesses and Stephen A. Smiths of the world win. And one of the things that really, really – or two of the things that gave me a lot of pleasure in seeing yesterday was – um, ESPN won for two things. One was their piece from Joplin, Missouri, the football team that had uh, uh, yeah, sort of risen from all the stuff that had went on. They, they had a producer there for a couple weeks or months basically piece, filming right? with the team. And then the other thing, and this is one of the best things I've ever seen ESPN do, I tweeted this out today, is the man with the red bandana, which is the story of a, a former BC lacrosse player who died in the 9-11 um, attack on the World Trade Center. But before he died on the 104th floor of the South Tower, he probably saved 10 to 12 people's lives by directing them uh, in a way for them to get out of the building. And what ESPN did was um, they found some of the people who he saved, put them together with his parents. Um, His parents had only discovered... Uh, what had happened to him because a woman who survived said that there was a guy with a red bandana who helped me down the stairs. And this kid, this kid, he was 24. Um, he, his whole life from playing lacrosse and growing up, his like one trademark was he always wore a red bandana wherever he went. So it was, it's really an amazing 13 minute video by ESPN. It's called the man with the red bandana. You can Google it. And the fact that that, those, that team, I think Drew Gallagher was the producer. The fact that that team won an Emmy and was recognized for that made me feel really good because I'm sure their bosses will see it. But the rest of the Emmys, I, I mean, you know, Bob Costas, I'm happy for him. I, I, I respect him. He wins awards. And maybe Joe, I think Joe Buck won. It's just not something I pay attention to. And to be very blunt, any award body that nominates Skip Bayless, <laughs> I have a serious issue with on principle. So I'm not very high on the sports Emmys this year for that nomination alone, but I honestly do like the fact that a lot of behind-the-scenes people um, get um, noticed, and I think that's a really cool thing. All right, go drink some tea and take care of that voice. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, bud. All right, thank you, and uh, as I go, let me just say, best to you, and best to Lee Jenkins. Thank you, bud. (laughs) All right, have to thank Richard Deitch for being on the show today. 
So, Don, quick question. Uh, if we were to do a top ten guests, history of the sportscasters right now, where would RD be on your list? He'd be very high. I think he'd be number two behind Damashek yeah, because uh, you're uh, clearly, if you've listened to more than 10 minutes of the podcast, more the sports expert on the show. So you'll, you can talk with anybody. You, I know you love Lee Jenkins, as Richard pointed out. And Damon Hack, I like a lot. I appreciate the guys that. that can come on and just bust our balls or just just chat a little bit about, about nothing sometimes. So Richard's really good at that, and Dave Damashek's probably the, the king at just chatting. All right, so quick book club update. We had thought today that we would close out our second <laughs> book club book of the month with Uh-oh. an interview with Hank Haney, but Hank Haney doesn't have time for the sportscasters. It doesn't seem like. I uh, sent a tweet to him and said, you know, it's about that time. You know, are we ready to do the interview? And he responded with an email address. I sent many emails to that email address, and I'm not getting a response back. So, you know what? Screw you, Hank Haney. We don't need you. Where would he fall on power rankings of list of Hanks? <laughs> he would be way down. Yeah, behind Hank Hill. For, for sure. sure. And uh, just the generic Hank, like just generic Hank, oh, okay. would be ahead of him as well. <laughs> okay. Hank. You know, he doesn't even he'd have... He'd be below, like, below the... Uh, he'd be way the fuck down. Opposite side of the bell curve. Yeah, he'd be way the fuck down. All right, uh, setting up the book club book of the month this week, and or this month, and the rest of the podcast, really. Uh, remember, next week, episode 18th, May 8th, which actually we should say now is going to be out May 9th, Wednesday. Right. Uh, Frank DeFord. And holy shit, Frank DeFord's going to be at our show. Unbelievable. And his uh, memoir is out over time, My Life as a Sports Writer by Frank DeFord. And uh, we're lucky enough to talk to Frank from a hotel room in Philadelphia next week where he is doing a book signing on the day the book comes out. Pretty fucking cool. Huh? Yeah, nice. All right. And then the following week, we are going to have John Smoltz. On the show, whose book starting and closing comes out next week with uh, Frank's book, so really looking forward to having John on the show. He's one of the one of the coolest athletes, really, in the last twenty years. He can golf. He's a great pitcher, and he's great on TV too. Some athletes transition to TV, and it's a bust. He's really good at it. So right, I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask what might be a dumb question. Okay, is he the guy that was drafted as a hockey player, also? Nope, that was Tom Glavin. Damn it, I knew it was one of the Braves. Yep. All right, so, and then our third book that we're reading this month is Like Any Normal Day by Mark Cram Jr., who we talked a little bit about with Alex Belf on the show last month. And uh, Don's going to read this one with us. Yeah. And we're going to talk to Mark on May 29th. We probably have copies to give away. We do. We do have copies to give away, and we'll do that to when we get closer to having Mark on. We'll do that during the Smoltz episode. We'll set up our – we have two copies to give away this book. Uh, so thanks to Mark and the publisher for that. All right. What we're going to do is we're going to take a break right now, and we're going to come back with uh, Mark Cro- or excuse me, Matt Crossman from the Sporting News. Our next guest is based in Charlotte, North Carolina, and is a graduate of Central Michigan University. He currently writes about football, baseball, and NASCAR for Sporting News, SportingNews.com, and the revamped Sporting News iPad app. His recent bonus piece on NFL draft pick Cody Sensenbaugh is one of the best pieces written about last week's NFL draft. 
award of sportscasters. Welcome to the awesome Matt Crossman. How are you doing today, Matt? I'm doing great. I appreciate you uh, having me on and uh, saying nice things about that story. Yeah, I, I just I really enjoyed it. I, I don't know. It just felt like you know one thing I, I think I like a lot about the draft is. Doesn't matter if you're the first pick in the draft, if you're in the second round, or if you're Mister Irrelevant. It seems like a lot of these guys just have really great stories, you know. And I think that's yeah. what draws us to it. Yeah, that's what uh, I mean. That's what makes it interesting to me too. Is I mean, you're essentially sitting next to somebody when they get their first job, and you know, it's not like somebody sitting next to me when I got my first job at a newspaper. It's there's more depth to it than that. And, and this, and, and Cody Sensavall, in in particular, I think you know people could people could relate to and uh, and feel good that something good had happened to him. How did you how did you find that story initially? Was that a story you've been following while he's in college, or was that something you found no. just in research for the draft? No, that was frankly dumb luck. Uh, I tried. Uh, I asked a couple of teams if they would let me uh, be a fly on the wall in their war room. I think I got turned down by three of them before I gave up on that idea. <laughs> And then I started uh, with, with a couple of uh, more recognizable names and got turned down by them and then decided uh, yeah, I, I had some travel restrictions. I didn't want to have to fly anywhere. So I, I just started looking for guys uh, within driving distance, frankly, of Charlotte. Uh, and I, I decided I wanted to do somebody who wasn't sure if he was going to get drafted because I thought that would give the story a different – like you could sit in the guy, with the guy in the second round and, yes, that's great, but there's no drama there. So right. I wanted to get a guy who we weren't sure was going to get drafted. You know, maybe everyone hasn't read the story. Do you want to maybe just give a little bit of a background of what made uh, what made his story so Cody's story so special? Sure. It, it, what it's so, like, like I said, I was looking for uh, guys that I could drive to, and, and I the reason that I liked I wanted to write about him is I had read an interview he did earlier uh, where he said he wanted to use his platform as an NFL player to either start a foundation or get involved in a leukemia foundation to honor his brother who had passed away. So I thought, well, that's, that, that's, that makes me want to read about the guy right away. And frankly, that was the only sentence I could find. I, I did a, a newspaper search. I did web searches. That, that was the extent of it. I couldn't find anybody who had written this story yet, which made it even better, right. in my opinion, that I would be telling people things that not even Clemson fans knew. Uh, so the, the story is when, when Cody was 11, and his older brother was 16, uh, his older brother uh, got leukemia and died, it all happened in, like, a week. And, I mean, that to me is, I don't know, I don't know what's worse, uh, to watch your brother die uh, slowly or to lose him suddenly. I mean, they both suck. Right. And, and what was interesting was when I first asked uh, for the access, uh, frankly, I don't think he wanted to do it. Hmm. And so I... I, I, I knew I was going to write about his brother, and I don't think in my initial pitch to his agent I had said much about that. And I sort of thought, if this kid is nervous about having a reporter follow him around, and then I start asking questions about his late brother, that could freak him out. So I called his agent back and said, look, I need to tell you this. If he doesn't feel good about it, and he sort of says yes with misgivings, and then I start asking about his brother, that, that could turn out to be really bad for him. And I didn't want to do that to the kid. Right. And when it, as it turns out, me saying that is what made him want to do it because he really wanted the chance to honor his brother. Uh, and so that, that's kind of how it came about. You know, it's so I think that's one of the things that definitely drew me to the story because I have two younger brothers, you know, and I've always, we have a really close relationship. And, um, you know, I, 
reading that, you know, it's it's similar to Adrian Peterson, who also lost a brother that he was really close with kind of suddenly, and that's part of his story. And it's great to see the brother kind of, you know, do this for his family. And I just imagine, what was the moment like in there when, when his name was called? Earlier than he expected, right? Oh, well, yeah, frankly, uh, as, I, I, as I was preparing and going there, I was a little nervous. Oh, did I, did I pitch my bosses on a story and this kid isn't going to get drafted? Huh. Uh, you know, and I, frankly, he was worried about that too. I mean, he admitted that he had, uh, you know, he was hoping for the best, but he had prepared himself for the worst. And you know, it, it, obviously, the draft is an imperfect science, but uh, there were probably ten cornerbacks rated higher than him uh, that he went before. So, yeah, he definitely went early. And the moment was it was really interesting. He was sitting like there; his living room is uh, more of a rectangle than a square. So he was as far away from the TV as you could be uh, and still be in that room. He was all the way across the room in the corner. There were at least five seats closer to the TV that he didn't take. Uh, I don't know why he did that, but I thought that was interesting to know. And then, you know, the draft, I expected it to be two and a half hours before he got drafted, and 50 minutes into it, he got a phone call. And I frankly thought, the first thing I thought was, which one of his friends is calling in the middle of the draft? Don't they know not to call? But then I heard him saying, yes, ma'am. And it was, I could hear, I was sitting close enough to him that I could overhear. Uh, that's, I mean, what kind of access is that? I was so close, I could hear that he was talking to a woman on the phone. And so everyone cool. said, shh, you know, and they, they turned the volume down. And, yeah, sure enough, it was it was the Tennessee Titans. And, like I said, I, I was so close to him, you know, I had a little point-and-shoot camera. All I did was swivel my shoulders and start taking pictures. I, was, I could have reached out and touched him. And his family, of course, went bonkers. His dad was... Frankly, I think I would call it sobbing. His dad was so excited. Yeah, you have a great picture <laughs> was, there. It, yeah, it, it was so noisy and chaotic. He got up and went in a uh, in the laundry room and shut the door. I mean, I, I said in the story, and he's talking to his bosses, and his whole family are, is losing their stuff in a good way. I mean, and obviously the Titans have been through that. They know. Uh, but he wanted to be able to hear the conversation. So, yeah, it was it was great. And the look on his face, I mean, it you know, I, I've written a lot of stories. I haven't witnessed something quite that cool. Uh, I'm not sure ever, you know, quite frankly, to see uh, something so exciting and so unexpected and so uh, positive happen while you're sitting right next to a guy. pretty neat. Did you get a chance to ask anyone with the in, in the Titans organization what it was about Cody that made them kind of, you know, draft him a little bit ahead of expectation? I, I didn't. But uh, we have a network of correspondents, and I asked them to ask that question. And uh, there's s- several answers to it. it. Is that you know, f- first of all, to I mean, he was draftable. It's not like he was terrible. Right. Uh, but he, he at the combine, uh, he ran. I'm told his agent told me he ran the third fastest speed among DBs. So there's obvious ability there, straight line speed. And then he was also very good at the. Uh, I think they call it cone drill. I think I had the drill right, which shows agility and athleticism, which are the two most important uh, aspects of a, a, a defensive back. And if you talk to his coaches, uh, they love him because they can put him anywhere you need to. He can play nickel. He can play dime. He can play man. He hasn't played much zone, but he, you know he got a, a 27, which is a great score on the Wonder Lick. So I think it was a combination of those three things. Uh, the Titans were the only team that he interviewed with at the Combine. And he did really good in that interview. The, the coaches talked about the interview after they picked him. 
and uh, the defensive back coach for the Titans is a guy named Brett Maxey who coached Cody's cousin, Gerald Tentabaugh, with the Cowboys, and he talked to Gerald, and obviously Gerald talked about him too. So there, there's a lot of things going on there. You know, what do you think uh, – you know, I was really excited to be able to read this piece while the draft was still fresh on the tablet and um, in the app there. Do you, do you think that this story lent itself well to being, you know, have, did you appreciate that immediacy to be able to get it to people? Almost like the, at the pace a newspaper uh, reporter gets to his, um, you know, people, whereas like the Sports Illustrated guys, maybe they won't have their stories from draft out until when the magazine comes to my house on Thursday. But I got to read this right in the heat of everything, and I think I really enjoyed that part of it. What do you think about the app and how it gives you kind of an immediacy to reach your, your readers? Oh yeah, I would agree 100. percent I mean, uh, I, I was t- I was telling this one of, one of my bosses asked me like for the timeline of how it went down. He got drafted at. Uh, I looked at my clock. It was 12:53. Uh, interestingly enough, 17 minutes later, his brother was on the phone to a sporting goods store, and I overheard him ask, "Do you carry Titans t-shirts?" Uh, which I thought was just great that his brother. It's not even 20 minutes old. His brother's already on the way to the store to buy t-shirts. That's awesome. Uh, so I, I hung out for a couple more hours uh, just to sort of soak up the atmosphere. And then I left their house, I think, at about 3, and I uh, I went to a, the closest Starbucks I could find and wrote the story. And I think it was up at 6. I think I filed at 5 and it was up at 6. Uh, I mean, that's incredible that that you can do that now. It, 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 especially, I mean, yeah, with the TV, it, it's, it's live. But to be able to, uh, you know, witness it, and have a good, you know, I had done a couple of hours worth of interviews with him uh, and his agent and his mom and his dad and his position coach and his uh, high school coach. So I had I had a full feature's worth of material before I set foot in his house, and then all that interesting stuff happened in his house. So, yeah, I, uh, you know, I, I've never done anything quite like that where you leave a non-game event and write it as if it's a game. So, yeah, that's... Yeah, that you know the, the app and the web make you know it just completely changed the world in terms of that kind of reporting. Yeah, and I mean it's just it's, it's so cool to be able to um, to get this story out as quick as you did. Like you said, he's drafted at twelve fifty three, and by six o'clock we had it. And I read it on the app, and I you know I really like the way kind of uh, sporting news has transitioned a little bit to the magazine not being at, out as frequently but still being able to have the writers that I enjoy reading reach me on an even more frequent basis than maybe when the newspaper version of the magazine way back when used to come to my house every week. I think it's been a really smooth transition. Well, uh, believe me, I like being able to deliver my writing to you on as many different platforms as possible. Uh, you know, I, I came up in the old school where you had the, you know, the, you know I, my career started before the Internet existed. Uh, and the transition, I, I wouldn't say, has always been fun, and I wouldn't say I was at the front of the line leading it. But, yeah, that, that's – I have completely come full circle on that. This uh, all happened day three of the draft. Was there anything caught your eye in the first couple of days of the draft that interests you? Anything you were surprised, maybe the number of trades, maybe the speed of the draft? Was there anything that maybe caught your eye as a reporter in the first couple of days of the draft? You know, I have to say I was uh, – I was not I was not immersed in it uh, enough because I was so focused on this. I, I know Luck went first, and I know RG three went second, and right. I know what the Browns traded up and the Cowboys traded up. That surprised me a little, frankly. Other than that, I would say 
at, at the risk of sounding not like a football writer, I didn't pay near enough attention to uh, to comment other than that. I, I do like, I'd done a big piece on Justin Blackman uh, two or three months ago. I went golfing with him, and Justin Blackman is the worst golfer I've ever seen. <laughs> uh, but he got dropped. He got drafted by the Jacksonville. Uh, yeah, drafted right. drafted yeah. by Jacksonville. They traded up to get him, and I, I think that's a perfect fit because he's a great kid. But if you put him in New York City, or if you put him in New England, or some crazy media uh, uh, market, I don't think he would thrive as much as he's going to in Jacksonville. I think Jacksonville will be a lot like Stillwater, or as close to Stillwater, you know, being Oklahoma State as he's going to get. So I, I think you know he, he went what third or fourth or fifth or whatever he went. Yeah. So it's not like he's going to sneak up on anybody. But I think he's going to. I think he's going to thrive there in Jacksonville. I think that's a great fit for him personality wise. Sports, yeah, yeah, so his golf is so bad. He looks like an elephant trying to catch butterfly, or an elephant, an octopus trying to catch butterfly. Not exactly yeah. Tony Romo of football golfers, then. <laughs> <laughs> the sportscasters are here with uh, Matt Crossman from Sporting News. You can find him on Twitter at Crossman Matt. You know, in your bio it says you do football, you do baseball. The calendar just switched from April to May today. The first month of the baseball season is behind us now, and maybe just as a general kind of just to prick your brain a little bit, what has kind of caught your eye in the first month of the baseball season? Well, I think Albert Pujols has to be the first answer of any uh, baseball writer. I lived in St. Louis for the first, I think, eight years of his career, seven years of his career, and he was, uh, of any athlete I've ever watched or covered, he was the most impressive, and it's not, frankly, even that close. But he was... If you took the numbers off the jerseys, if you couldn't read stats, you could simply watch baseball and know just by looking at him that he was better. And there are only a handful of guys in any sport that I will say that about. Him, Barry Sanders, uh, Wayne Gretzky when he was in his heyday, maybe Sid the Kid uh, a couple of years ago. Those are the only guys you could, you didn't have to ask if he was the best player. And so for him to go through the whole month hitting 215 or whatever it is and not hit a single home run, uh, that's, that to me, that's as far as an individual goes, yeah, that, that's the big story. Do you think, you know, there's a lot of money left and a lot of years left on that contract. Do you think this is a sign of decline, or do you think this is just an example of a guy who went into a situation with a lot of pressure, got off to a slow start, and it's just built on him, and he's just gripping it, and once he gets past that first one, gets a couple hits together, he's going to be back to being Albert. What, what is your opinion based on your track record following him? I think it's mostly... Uh, that he's trying to choke the bat, but there, maybe it's 5% he's not as good as he was five years ago. You know what I mean? That, that it's a little bit of both, but mostly I think he's, his shorts are too tight, his shoes are too tight, the hat's too tight, yeah. uh, everything is too tight. That, I mean, that would be my guess. Uh, I mean, because the alternative is the Angels just made the biggest mistake in the history of contracts. So, you know, I, I don't, he's certainly not in a full-fledged decline, but sure, certainly a small percentage of it is that he's just not as good as he was. But mostly I would say it's, it's, he's just overcome with the stress of the moment. Is there anything kind of at the top of your notebook that you're really interested in seeing develop here in the second and third month as we get closer to the All-Star break? You know, maybe it's the way the Nationals can pitch and kind of their emergence. You know, maybe it's the, the way that um, the Red Sox have gotten off to kind of a sh- shaky start and Valentine's maybe on shaky ground there. Maybe it's... Derek Jeter having a great start. Maybe it's Josh Hamilton. Just some ideas, but what kind of interests you to, to see how it develops beyond this 
start to the season. Yeah. Frankly, I think it's that, that Red Sox idea that, that a team that is, you know, allegedly, you know, very talented uh, and that just wet the bed at the end of last season to open the season this season as, as horribly as they have. Uh, you know, they got swept in the uh, opening in the opening series and in, you know and played pretty poorly at that. And then they have the manager calling out one of the most popular players and right. blowing a nine nothing lead to the Yankees at home. I mean, there are worse starts to Red Sox seasons, I'm sure, but this one has to feel just about as bad as any of them. When I heard the comment of you know I don't know how they do it in Japan, I thought, oh man, wow, this this could get ugly, you know, because I just that I just. It was so early in the season. I just didn't expect to hear something like that, you know. But it sounds like that that could really escalate there. Yeah, and, and also, not only is that sort of a harsh comment, it's also kind of stupid because Bobby Valentine has been managing manage, manage the big leagues for a long time before he went to Japan and had a hell of a career before that. So to sort of you know act as if you know he doesn't know what he's talking about because he managed in Japan. <laughs> uh, you know who, who was it that said that? Pedroia. Ah, uh, yes, Pedroia. Yep. Yeah, I mean, that's just stupid. Yeah, I think it's made me a little bit of emotion boiling to the surface there. Maybe, you yeah. know, probably wanted that one back right after it slipped his mouth. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's the Sportscasters here again with uh, Matt Crossman from Sporting News, one of our favorite writers. You can find him on Twitter, at Crossman Matt. Like we said in this interview, his writing is a lot more accessible with the iPad app, which I highly recommend. It updates itself a couple times a day, which I really love. And there's a few different columns every day, and then you can track your own teams. What do you think of the app and kind of the evolution of it to what it was maybe the first time we had you on the show about a year ago to what it is today and kind of the way you can customize it in just a couple of articles a day instead of, you know, kind of a full magazine type like you guys used to produce? Yeah, I think that customization is obviously where it's at and and where it's going and the constant refinement of that. That uh, you know, just knowing knowing what customers want and giving it, uh, you know, customers, readers, whatever you want to call it, and giving it to them uh, in the morning and in the afternoon. I mean, and it's so it, the thing that I like about it too is it, it's sort of bell and whistly without seeming bell and whistly, if you know what I mean. That yeah, that it, you know, in, in order to uh, make it, you know, to customize it for you, that's that's not a small amount of work on the front end. But it's easy for you, you know, that you get your, your Buffalo news uh, with no problem whatsoever. So it's sort of a bell and whistle without it seeming like uh, an overly ex- it's so easy to use. Uh, but the functionality is also very good. All right, last thing. What, uh, what can we look forward to in the next coming days, weeks, months from uh, Matt Crossman? Uh, lots of baseball. Uh, the next baseball issue uh, we're doing is sort of a history of baseball. And I'm working on something on the 95 ALDS when uh, the Yankees lost uh, to the Mariners in a lot of games in Game Five. Yeah. You know, one of the one of the greatest and most important. Well, maybe, maybe certainly in Seattle, uh, probably the most important series in Seattle baseball history that season is the reason the Mariners still exist. If you listen to, you know, I talked to a couple of former Mariners who seem pretty convinced that uh, there was at least an even money chance that if they if they don't come back and make the playoffs that season, and then maybe the team moves to Tampa. And so, that was, that was uh, Don, Mattingly's, that, right? Don Mattingly's last game, right? Yep, Don Mattingly's last game. Uh, you know, Junior Griffey scoring for first on a double by 
Edgar Martinez. Uh, I talked to Edgar the other day. I talked to Magnum the other day. Uh, just sort of working on, on rounding that out. So that, that's uh, my next big thing. Awesome. We'll look forward to that. Really appreciate the time today, and uh, we'll look forward to talking to you in the future. Thank you, Matt. Sure. Yep. Thanks for having me on. Okay. Talk to you later. It's time for a new segment we've created called Five on Fantasy. With the first pick, Adrian Peterson, Drew Brees, Stephen Jackson, Miles Austin, Leonette Ocho Cinco, TJ Hushmanzada. I once tricked my brother Greg into picking Roy Williams about nine rounds after he had actually been selected. <laughs> I don't care. I'm just trying to win me a fantasy football league. All right, I want to thank Matt Crossman for being on the show today. Uh, always enjoy Matt. Like I said, I think he's one of the more underrated writers really out there. Okay, so switching gears a little bit. Last week, in honor of the NFL draft, Don and I revived the 5 on Fantasy segment, kind of put aside the Sportscasters 10 for right now, and we did a first-round fantasy football mock draft, kind of version 1.0 of what will be probably version 5.0 by the time we actually start <laughs> yeah. drafting. But we kind of enjoyed it so much. And there were so many players that we thought could have been in round one that weren't that we decided this week we'd continue it and do round two. And as we've been preparing for this, we've realized that we could probably do round three next week if we want. Because Maybe even four, what we noticed yeah. is that there's going to be 30 or 40 guys that are going to be really hard to rank. Um, it's going to be really interesting this year. And so we're going to keep going with uh, we did round one and maybe – First thing we should do is recap our round one. Do you have yours, Don? I no? do, yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm going to recap mine real quick. I had Arian Foster going one, LaShawn McCoy two, Ray Rice three, Aaron Rodgers four, Kelvin Johnson five, Drew Brees six, Tom Brady seven, Jones Drew eight, Ryan Matthews nine, Matt Forte ten, DeMarco Murray eleven, and Cam Newton twelve. Yeah, I had Aaron Rodgers one, Foster two, Ray Rice three, McCoy four, Johnson, five. Breeze, six. So we had all the same top six, just in a different, different order. order yep. MJD, seven. Forte, eight. Brady, nine. Andre Johnson, ten. Matthew Stafford, 11. And Rob Gronkowski, 12. Uh, and again, it's it's crazy. We were looking at a site you showed me, fantasyfootballcalculator.com. Which is cool. And they have live drafts, uh, live mock drafts run there. And they have, so you can already look at like early ADPs. And to see where a guy like where we have huge differences, like McFadden, McFadden doesn't make my top twenty-five, and maybe he should, but he's their eleventh overall pick. Marshawn Lynch is their twelfth overall pick. He doesn't make my top list. Demarco Murray is their thirteenth, and he's on my list, but uh, not quite that high. So it's it's looking at this, and we said this off the air. It would be fun to draft a real fantasy league right now if injuries didn't come into it, because. You could have guys you rank as first and second round talents that you'd be drafting in the fourth and fifth round because people just don't rank them the same. There's you know, not one good cheat sheet that you know what I, what important tiebreaker is going to be out there more more than ever is the make sure you draft a player you like. Yeah. You know you know how we've talked about in the past if you have two guys that are the same that maybe the best way draft to split them is the guy that like you like the more. Yeah, I think this year when you pick in the first and second and third round. You might have five guys that you think are basically the same. It's going to be really tough to decide who to pick. Yep. So, well, let's get into it. Uh, why don't you kick us off? Give us your first three in round two. Okay. Uh, my last pick was Rob Gronkowski, so I'm going to couple that with Ryan Matthews. I wasn't as high as on as you were, but the more I thought about it, he doesn't have Tolbert there anymore. He still has. He's going to basically be the one man show there. Uh, they've lost a lot of their offense. 
Uh, Gates seems a little bit older, but Philip Rivers is still Philip Rivers, so they should be fine there. So he's pretty much he's fairly safe to have a good year next to Gronkowski. But my eleventh pick was Matt Stafford, so I'm going to couple him with Larry Fitzgerald. Look, he didn't have a good season last year. He's got help this year. He's got help, and he, Kevin Cobb is going to get a full training camp mini camp all that stuff with the team there's no lockout or anything this year so i like fitzgerald as my third receiver and i have a run of receivers here the next five or six guys are about the same to me so it was tough to rank them uh my other this the team drafting next would have andre johnson in the first round i'm gonna couple that with roddy white uh ensure a lot of catches white's probably safer to stay healthy and I just didn't like any running backs enough to make that jump at this point. All right, so my team that drafted 12 took Cam Newton. So I'm going to pair that up with Jamal Charles. Um, here's the thing about Charles as compared to Peterson and Mendenhall. Those are like the three big running backs who had ACLs last year. Mendenhall and Peterson's came much later in the year. So I kept both of them out of my second round, where Charles happened, I think, week two. So it, it was no later than week three. Um, so he's had his calendar year, and I think he'll be ready to be full go. I have Matt Stafford going second in the round. That team picked DeMarco Murray in round two. So they have some really nice upside there. And then with the Matt Forte pick, I'm going to pair Rob Gronkowski, my third pick in round two. I like that um, kind of you got one of the top running backs and one of the top tight ends. Yeah. Uh, to reference that site again, fantasyfootballcalculator.com, they have Mendenhall right now going as the 11th pick in the ninth round. Wow. Behind guys like Michael LaShore, Toby Gerhardt. That makes sense to me. He wasn't good anyway last no. year. He was going to drop way off anyway. Now he's got an ACL on top of that. I've never liked him. He's probably him. off my board. He's, he's a boring runner. He runs three yards at a time. He's just had. A, he's got a good offense. He's off my board. I, I don't want him. No, really I won't end up with him at all. All right, my, with my fourth pick in this round, I'm going to go Greg Jennings. Uh Pair that with Tom Brady. I'm pretty happy there. Again, Jennings is on that super offense, but there's just so many weapons there, and Rodgers uses all of them. Jordy Nelson had a breakout year last year. Their tight end, uh, whose name is escaping me, always Michael is, Finley. Jermichael, Jermichael Finley. Finley. Yeah, he was hurt last year, so he should be he should be healthy. And uh, they just spread the ball too much for me to really really love Jennings. Otherwise, that offense is tailor made for a receiver. Uh, my next pick is Mike Wallace. We'll pair that with Matt Forte. Mike Wallace, you kind of got to watch his contract situation, but I'm I'm assuming they get something worked out, and he has no health issues as far as no. I know. So him, it's just a matter of dollars. So there's no no worries there. Guy's fast, scores a lot of touchdowns. Had Long. a better first half than second half. Last yeah, he year. did. He did. Yeah. Uh, my next guy is Akeem Nix, another wide receiver. Pair him with MJD. That's that's about as safe as you can get. Uh, Hakeem Nix, I guess if you have to worry about anything, maybe it's the emergence of Victor Cruz, but two wide receivers can work in an offense that throws a ton. They don't really run the ball well there. I'm guessing that this is a probably a mistake on my part to think that with the fourth pick in the second round you're going to get Andre Johnson. But if it worked out the you way never know. I laid it out, you're going to probably rush that pick and be really happy to have Andre Johnson and Ryan Matthews. Seems like a nice little combo to start yeah. there. Uh, Darren McFadden and MJD uh, be one of the few teams in your fantasy league that have a really reliable one and two running back who are going to get basically every carry in their offense. McFadden's such an interesting guy. Yeah, he's really hard. He's, to, he has, he's never finished a season really healthy, or if he has, it's only been one or two. But he's got tons of talent. And then I'm going to pair Tom Brady with Jimmy Graham. Yeah. Um, 
running back, you're going to have to go with this team. You have to go upside here, but a lot of teams are going to be in this boat. There's a lot of young upside, or you can even go. I just said I probably wouldn't have them on my teams, but guys like Michael Turner, Ahmad Bradshaw, there's nothing exciting there, but they'll be there. And then in the later, like the third, fourth round, Trent Richardson, we talked about for upside. Um, my next pick is this is where I finally have Chris Johnson come in. I I don't know what to think about Chris Johnson this year. I don't know if it was just an off year with a <clears throat> with a bad offense. Tennessee hopes so. Right. I mean, they pay him they a ton of money. A lot of money to him. Hopefully, the fact that he's kind of become a punchline has will motivate him this year. Um, I think he's slightly safer than DeMarco Murray and Jamal Charles. Probably doesn't have the upside either do, which is crazy to say after a few years ago. And I'm going to pair him with – got to work backwards here. What pick are we on? This is one, two, three. Should be four, your five, sixth six. pick overall. This is my seventh. So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. So he's going to be with Drew Brees. So I got a safe pick in Brees. I guess I can afford to gamble a little bit with Chris Johnson. My next pick of this draft is Jimmy Graham. Uh, I'm going to combine him with Calvin Johnson. I'm going to be pumped about it. You got yeah. the number one receiver and the number one and potentially or two tight the number end. one tight end yeah. at worst, the number two tight end. Uh, next, I'll finally go back to quarterback and draft Cam Newton, and I'll pair him with Lashawn McCoy again. Uh, a lot of flash and speed there. Yeah, I like that. Okay, so uh, my next grouping would be you have Drew Brees. Why don't you get a running back now? Marshawn Lynch is the best one left on my board. Uh, then uh, the next team is the team with Calvin Johnson. Maybe you want to go running back. Chris Johnson is it would be my next one there. And then the team who drafted Aaron Rodgers, go wide receiver. There's a really good one left, so I'll take Larry Fitzgerald. Yeah, my... I think because I'm a Bills fan, I might just hate on Lynch too much. Because you might. I, I might take the upside of like a Trent Richardson before I would take Lynch, and Trent Richardson isn't in my top 25. Uh, next, I go Jamal Charles. Uh, the guy that drafts Charles already has Ray Rice, and it looks like you can get a ton of solid receivers in this draft that are going to drop into the third, fourth round. So I'm happy with that, even though Charles is a bit of a risk. Rice and whatever receiver you draft shouldn't be. Then I'm going to draft Wes Welker to pair with Arian Foster. Again, it's just steady. It's a PPR. you got a lot of points there. So now you're going to do the I guy actually, who picked one. You're going to give me his next two. Yeah, he's the got last two, two right? picks. Right. My one was Aaron Rodgers in this draft. Again, I said last week I'm not a guy to draft quarterback first. So this probably wouldn't be – maybe this might not be who I would take one because I don't know if I could pull the trigger on a quarterback. But I'm going to take DeMarco Murray in his upside – uh, because I like his upside, like I said, more than a guy like Marshawn Lynch or Michael Turner or Steven Jackson. And I'm going to actually take A.J. Green. Uh, Interesting. I, I know there's guys out there like Victor Cruz, Jordy Nelson, Marshall Colston, or Marcus Colston, and uh, Brandon Marshall. But A.J. Green's the, the man. He's the yeah. number one there. Yep. The only thing about A.J. Green is when you watch him, he is so small looking. Like He just looks like he's could get injured on any play. Not short. He's a big, he's a big tall guy, but he's very thin. Uh, he looks a little bit like a, like an Ocho Cinco, but but taller and probably better hands. But he was great this year in his rookie year, so I guess you worry about the sophomore slump a little bit. But he's got a ton of upside. All right, I'm gonna say that my guy who picked third overall is gonna take took Ray Rice. He's gonna take Greg Jennings, and really love that. Yeah. Start. Uh, second overall is Sean McCoy. He's gonna take uh, Mike Wallace. Gonna love that start. Yep. 
And uh, the guy who picked first overall for me took Arian Foster. He's going to get two players. And uh, based on what's happened in my draft, he's going to go running back, running back. And this is assuming you have a flex position. Yeah. And he's going to take Darren Sproles and Trent Richardson. So how about interesting start, right? You got yeah. Arian Foster, Darren Sproles, and Trent Richardson. And the more I look at this, and I'm almost a little bit disappointed in myself, but I we didn't do the second round until this week. But there's no way I go quarterback number one overall, and maybe not for because all these other teams sound like they're stacked. Like you're Arian Foster, Richardson, Sproles, Sproles, and then. The guy that drafted Aaron Rodgers number one overall is going to end up with someone like DeMarco Murray, or maybe like you had Lynch a lot higher. So say Aaron Rodgers, Lynch, and then even if you like like Victor Cruz more, you're getting Rodgers, Lynch, and Cruz. Lynch and Cruz are really no danger to be the best at their position in the league. And I suppose Rodgers could be, but it just doesn't feel as exciting as drafting like two big-name running backs first. So that's why I'm always scared off by quarterbacks a little bit. Plus, you can get a guy in the uh, in the later rounds that'll have a, a comparable season. Like Peyton, where, where's Peyton going to go? You could take a flyer on him and a decent yeah. backup. Well, I think what we've proven in the last two weeks doing this is, one, fantasy football season can't come quick enough this year. No, for sure. It's really exciting. And two, if you do five leagues, say you're really into it like that, you do five leagues, the top two rounds is going to have 25, 24 guys. They're going to probably be different 24, 25 guys in every draft. Yeah, I'm curious to see what – what changes that coming up? Because I know it's super early, so that makes it tough to project too. But what is going to happen other than injuries that's going to sort the this out? The one thing that's going to sort out a little bit is running backs are going to be more established as the main guy. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like maybe you're a little scared about DeMarco Murray because Felix Jones is there. Well, maybe then the Cowboys move Felix Jones and okay, you right. know, and then that moves Murray up a little bit or something like that. Or maybe the Forte contract gets settled and he rushes for 100 yards and in the first quarter of the first preseason game, and bam, he's number three on your draft board then. It'll be interesting. So to- I think it's going to be – the running backs is going to be what settles it because we're going to see some of these committees sort out a little bit and we're going to get some of the question marks answered. We're going to know what's going on with Jamar Charles' knee. You know, we're going to know where Adrian Peterson's at. We're going to know more. We're going to get more information. That's what we need right now is more information. Yeah, and certain running backs that we didn't even talk about, but in, like in the Denver situation, you've got Willis McGahee. They still have uh, no Sean Moreno, and I think they drafted a kid too. Yeah, so but whoever's need- going to be the number one guy there could be super valuable in an offense with Peyton. All right, so this was really fun. I can't wait to do version 2.0. Yeah. Maybe we'll wait a month. About that. Hey, email us. Tell us Maybe what we we'll, got wrong. Yeah, we'll update this every month. Uh, email us at sportscasters at gmail.com. We're going to take a break and come back with Dave Meltzer. Our next guest is from New York City, New York, and is a graduate of San Jose State University. He has spent his career covering professional wrestling and mixed martial arts, and is most known for the Wrestling Observer Newsletter. He has written for the Oakland Tribune, Los Angeles Times, and The National. He has been a leader in covering the UFC since 1993, mostly for Yahoo.com, and recently for ESPN's Grantland website. He is a five-star guest, and we are very pleased to welcome Dave Meltzer to the Sportscasters. How are you doing today, Dave? 
Really good. How are you guys? Doing very good. We're really, uh, really excited to have you on. It, um, it was the it was a listener who who uh, actually initially approached us and said, you know, you really should get Meltzer on. And and I, I've been a I was I grew up like a big wrestling guy. You know, I've gotten away from it a little bit the last couple of years, but I was just like, yes, definitely, that's a great idea. So we're really glad to have you on the show today. Why don't we start with the wrestling stuff? You know, I was a huge fan. In the Hogan era, really. That's when I grew up. You know, I'm a child of the 80s. Um, and I always have said that the most brilliant thing about the WWE, then it was WWF, now the E, has been that even though I have kind of drifted away from their current product, they've still always managed to keep me as a customer with these unbelievable DVD sets that they put out, which I have a great collection of. And now I'm even more excited for... The network. What can you tell us about the WWE Network? I know it's been delayed at, at least once, if not twice now. What's kind of the status of the network? When can we uh, expect it? What kind of reach are they hoping to get with it? Tell us a little bit about WWE and, and their network. It's still a work in progress. The, um, I mean, the target date is November, but they're not going to say that because they don't want to miss another date and kind of look bad, so... That's kind of uh, where everything stands right now. And they, they really don't have a, a concept of what they're going to do. Like today, you know, they were asked if they were going to put pay per you know, the pay-per-views on it, the B pay-per-views, not the, the big pay-per-views. Right. And they said they still haven't figured that out yet. So there's, there's a lot of decisions that haven't been made when it comes to the network. And as far as how much reach, that's a bunch of negotiations that haven't been completed. So we really don't know. Now, I had heard... I think I had read that they had started production on like a reality house that had a bunch of former wrestlers in it. Did they? Yeah, Legends, the Legends House show. That they actually filmed that for for Sci-Fi, but then I think Sci-Fi turned it down. So now it's going to be on the network again, and uh, so I guess that's going to be in November. But they fil- they've already fil- finished filming that. Okay, that is finished. So I mean, nobody has the the video library that they have. But are you confident that they can mix enough original programming with kind of, you know, using that library and keep the station interesting? Um, that's a real good question. I don't, I don't know the answer because um, we don't even really know what's going to be programmed. And it's like they're going to have new shows, and if some of those shows are good and they and people watch them, you know, that's a positive. If they're crappy shows, then it's going to be tougher. So it's it's like. It's like uh, to evaluate that now, you know, if it's going to be a success or a failure. I mean, I don't even know the lineup, let alone having seen the first show. So it's really not fair to make any kind of a judgment. You know, I've always kind of looked at the WWE as having two kind of golden eras, the the Hogan era that we talked about and then the Attitude era later. Where do they stand now in comparison to those era? What what kind of is the status of the company? They're they're doing fine. Um, You know, the stock market, the stock price isn't doing very well, but... The the wrestling itself is is profitable because it's easier to be profitable than any time in history in wrestling just because there's so many revenue streams. If you're the big guy, um, if you have national television, it's, it's harder than ever to be profitable if you're not the big guy. But it's always been like that in wrestling. You know, re- wrestling's always been like it just was a regional thing. But I mean, you know, it was very few areas did well with two different companies running the area, and it's the same thing now. So so uh, the companies that are in um, have it you know easier and uh, you know WWE. It's almost impossible for them not to make money just because of the various ways they can make money. So um, I mean that, that aspect they're doing fine. They're being dragged down by the movie business for sure. You know I mean that that 
businesses cost them a ton of money, but uh, the wrestling has been able to cover it. So, so um, you know, I don't see any major changes in them one way or the other. They're, you know, it's not it's not at peak uh, level of popularity. It's not even close. But uh, you know, compared to normal levels of popularity, it's uh, it's kind of hard to say exactly what that, what that would be because. Um, um, you know, attendance-wise, they don't run cities as often, so it's hard to judge. Television ratings-wise, no, they're not where they used to be. They're probably at, uh, not quite the lowest era yet, but they're at a low in a low era uh, ratings-wise. Pay-per-view-wise, they're in a low era as well. So it's um, but uh, but Mania was very successful, so it's hard to like really read exactly where they are. They're they're doing fine. They're not um, they're not anywhere close to record record breaking. That's for sure. You know, it seems like, you know, a lot of wrestling fans have said, you know, the product is always better when there's someone pushing them. And I know there's TNA and, and Ring of Honor, but those those companies have never really reached the anywhere near the level of where the WWE has felt pressure from them, have they? Do you think the, the product hurts not having a WCW? And it's been a long time now since there's been a real challenger. Do you think the product has suffered over that amount of time? I don't think so much WWE has suffered. I think that it's it's probably hurt them as far as motivation and stuff in some ways a little bit. But I think wrestling in general has suffered in, in, in gigantically by not having uh, an opposition group. I think that um, two strong companies make the business much, much more interesting just because you get two different varieties. And the, the problem is, as you can say, well, TNA, but TNA has never, ever been established as a viable group. Um, you know, when it comes to really being competition, it never had the, um, I mean, it, it didn't, it just never has been, it didn't have the history started from scratch and they never have been able to make new stars or anything like that to a, any real, you know, strong degree. They don't have the, the level of television exposure WWE has not even close. So, um, yeah, I think, um, I think that, uh, in, in a sense, you know, business, the business itself in some ways, I think is it a weak, is it kind of in a weak situation? I think it's kind of less relevant to a lot of people than, um, you know, maybe, I won't say any time in, in my lifetime, but, but any time since 1997, I think that it's probably less relevant to the public than, than any time, you know, before that. I mean, since then. You know, it seems like but what drives the relevance from times has been when they can get the tie-ins to the mainstream, you know, like during the rock and wrestling era, it was, it was really relevant, you know, when they had Mike Tyson at WrestleMania, that was huge. When they had... Donald Trump at WrestleMania that that caused a spike. Uh, is that is that kind of the what drives them in terms of getting the larger audiences when they can get the general pop culture tie-ins and, and reach a wider audience that way? Yes, um, but also it's a question of the guys themselves that are out on the road being you know connecting to the audience. Um, and 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 right now there aren't a lot of those guys out there. Um, the celebrities help, but you they, you can't rely on the celebrities. The celebrities are kind of a boost. You know, Tyson was huge. There's no question. Um, right, as far as 14, WWE, right? WWE at this part, and especially when you consider that they were in a wrestling war, and Tyson was a big part of uh, turning the tide for them. So yeah, he was big. You know, Ma, you know Muhammad Ali, Mr. T. You know those guys for the first WrestleMania, and uh, you know Mr. T was gigantic, really. I mean, as far as propelling the brand, but it's not so much now. I mean, there have been so many celebrities. I mean, Trump, Donald Trump was was good. But that was a one-time thing, you know. It really, you know, it wasn't like it. When Donald Trump left, it wasn't like he brought in a whole bunch of people who stayed fans. Whereas, the way that you make this work with the usage of celebrities is if the celebrity works with someone, 
and then that someone that they work with, like with with, with uh, Mr. T, it was Roddy Piper and Hulk Hogan, and Cindy Lauper was was also Hulk Hogan, and you you by association with a celebrity that your your guy, who's your normal guy, it, you know, gets very big. So, um, and the same thing happened with Austin, um, you know, with with Mike Tyson, but with with Trump, they tried to do it for Bobby Lashley, but you know, a couple months later, Bobby Lashley was gone, so he really didn't have any long term effect. It was great for the day. Um, you know, right now with um, with the Rock coming in, the the guy who got the benefit of the Rock coming in was Cena. But you know, Cena's been around for so long. I don't think that Cena's really. I don't know that he's made Cena any bigger. Maybe he has. You know, I mean, time will tell. Maybe he has. You know, that kind of. I kind of have two follow-ups to that. One is, um, I was going to ask you kind of about the Mount Rushmore of wrestling, and I mean, we definitely we would put Hogan on there. We put Austin on there. Is there anyone that's currently wrestling that maybe Triple H comes to mind right away? And I know the Undertaker's kind of part time, but is there? Do they have a, a star right now that would truly be on the Mount Rushmore of wrestlers? Cena is as close, and, and Lesnar has the potential to be. Okay, so I, I wouldn't put Triple H at that level. I mean, I'd put The Rock at that level, but not Triple H. I mean, Triple H is the you know a level or two below. Now Lesnar is back. You know this is kind of a new thing, right? This is going to be um, the pay per view coming up. Is he was at WrestleMania, but this is going to be the first pay per view since that they've had a chance to build up. Um, how big is that for the company, and what what kind of plans do they have for Lesnar? And is he healthy enough for it? For well, we're going to find out. He should be healthy enough. I mean, because he had surgery to take care of his intestinal problem. I mean, I don't know if he's healthy enough to to, to fight at top level, but. Is he healthy enough to do promos? Yeah. I mean, as far as wrestling, well, I guess we'll find out Sunday. I mean, as far as like how good a wrestler he's going to be. The um, you know, plans are is if it's going to work or not, and, and how, how long, if he's going to stay. And there's just, just a lot of different, there's all kinds of variables. I think we're going to have a, you know, a real good idea in about a month or two on, on how big he can be. I think he can be huge, but, um, you know, it's not a, it's not a lock, and, and um, he may not stay. And they may botch it up in the booking. So, you know, there's just so many different variables. But he, he, he has a chance to be really big. Um, you know, I think him and Cena have a chance to, like, take the company up um, a little bit. You know, you mentioned that WrestleMania, which is just last month, did pretty well. And I kind of hinted in the introduction that you've kind of had this rating system, the five-star matches, zero to five. And did they have a five-star match at WrestleMania? Is there one as someone who, I mean, I'll admit I missed it. Is there one that I need to make sure I go back and check out? I mean, I had Undertaker and Triple H pretty close, but I wouldn't say five stars or anything. But it was, it was pretty damn great match. Um, it was I mean, it's probably one of the better matches in WrestleMania history. Uh, none of the other ones would be close to that. But uh, CM Punk and Jericho was a was a good match for sure, and Rock and Cena was was good for what it was. It was actually pretty it was, it was a pretty good match, all things considered. Um, so you know, I mean, I thought that the, the the Mania show was definitely a good show. It wasn't when it was over. I, I mean, to me, it was was one of the top five WrestleManias of all time, no way. But it was a a quality WrestleMania. You know, uh, ever since I knew I was going to have you on, I've been I've been just for the fun of it, kind of watch. I think I've watched the first ten WrestleManias, and um, you know, Steamboat and Savage is always something that for me, because I'm a big Steamboat fan, I'm, I'm going to always put on a pedestal. I mean, I, I to me, it's, it's the greatest thing that they've ever done, in my opinion. The whole thing from the 
Crush Larynx all the way up until Steamboat holding the belt with uh, Georgie Animal Steel in front of all the people at um, Pontiac Silverdome. In your opinion, you know what are kind of the the top five star matches in WrestleMania history? I think the best ones um, is the first Undertaker Shawn Michaels and the Bret Hart Steve Austin match from ninety seven yeah, are like the two that I think would be really right at the top. Um Steamboat and Savage is, is pretty close. Bret Hart and Owen Hart uh from ninety four and Shawn Michaels and Razor Ramon from that same WrestleMania are both pretty high. The second uh Undertaker Michaels uh I really both Undertaker Triple H matches are there too as well. Um then you go down a little bit. Um, there's, there's probably some others that I'm not remembering off the top of my head. I mean, there's a John love... Michaels, Jericho, uh, Brock Lesnar, Kurt Angle. I remember being very good. Uh, Benoit against Michaels against Triple H was really good. Jeez, you know, I think um, it's probably if I look back, um, it seemed like you know every Shawn Michaels match at WrestleMania um, practically was really really good. But the ones that you know, the, the you know, Bret Hart, Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels hour match was was good, but I, I wouldn't put it at the top top level. Um, but um, the uh, I really yeah, enjoyed I mean, I, Bret Hart. I guess the the first Undertaker Shawn was probably the best Shawn that I can that I can think of, except, unless you put the the ladder match on the day it was held was was just incredible. But it's been right. topped by other ladder matches, and then you know the, the Edge and Christian Dudleys and, and Hardys actually the one that they had at WrestleMania was an awfully good match too. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, two that I, I've watched in the last couple of days that I I forgot how good they were was the um, retirement match at WrestleMania 7 between uh, Savage and, and Warrior, mostly because I... That was I, a good match, too, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, you never expect when you, you know, talk about Warrior, you, you think of him as kind of stiff, but that was great. And I really like Bret Hart and um, and uh, Roddy Piper. I think that was at WrestleMania Yeah, that was real, that was real good. Yeah. That was real good. Yeah, Rick so, Flair and Randy Savage, Rick Flair and Randy Savage at the same WrestleMania was also really good. Yeah, do you think they blew it not having uh, Hogan and and why didn't they have Hogan and Flair that year? I was going to ask you that. Uh, it, it, I mean, in hindsight, everyone brings that up, but you know, I mean, I was following it when it was going on, and the reality was is that they had burned out Flair and, and Sid Vicious was was uh, a bigger deal at that point in time, mm-hmm. and um, I think that uh, if they had brought Flair in uh, in in like March. Of of ninety two, and then put it at WrestleMania. It would have been good, but by the, they had started doing those matches in September of ninety one, and by November of ninety one, they burned it out. I mean, it's you know matches have shelf lives. So by the time you got to WrestleMania, there really the interest really wasn't there in that match, even though they never had done a pinfall or anything. Um, I mean, Vince, you know, Vince was looking at the numbers. I mean, I remember the story that. Uh, they had a match in, uh, I think it was Tampa, that, that drew poorly, and, and they had a bunch of matches that, that, that drew okay, but nothing special. So, you know, he just looked, he just goes like, look, public's interest in this match. We've done it all we can do. People want something different. And then they they moved it to um, Sid. But the plan was always to go to Sid at WrestleMania, because when, when he recruited Sid, you got to remember that when he recruited Sid, he thought that Sid was going to be the next big thing in wrestling, and to recruit him from WCW, he promised him, WrestleMania against Hogan, so that was another aspect of it. Was he made that promise? Gotcha. Yeah, this this is incredible. I could do this all day, but we should do some UFC. But uh, I want to ask you one last thing. You know, I've been watching all these shows, and one thing that I think is ma- makes them great, even when 
you know, like in WrestleMania 5, there's some stretches where they're just having these matches, and I don't know why they book these matches, and they're kind of boring, but what still made them great was the chemistry between Jesse Ventura and Gorilla Monsoon, and then at some of the later ones, it was Gorilla and Bobby Heenan, and then the great chemistry between uh, Jerry Lawler and JR. How important to a wrestling show is to have these top announced pairs and their chemistry, and how are the how is the announcing these days? Uh, the announcing is okay. I mean, it's it's not as good without Jim Ross. You know, it's it's um. I don't think that that. I mean, like really, really bad announcing will hurt. Most announcing, I think, uh, is just kind of there. Uh, if you got a really, really good announcer, yeah, he can kind of make it seem a little more classy or a little more exciting. Uh, but um, I don't really think that 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 the announcing makes a giant difference unless it's um, I mean there have been shows in the last year with WWE when Michael Cole was doing the heel character and he was really you know um, over the top and then you had Booker T with Michael Cole um, announcing with Lawler and it was not a good pairing you know before uh, I mean I mean Booker was really bad when he started he's he's gotten better so so there was there were shows where where the announcing was like a, a genuine negative but right now I don't think the announcing is either positive or negative. All right, let's uh, let's transition. We're here in in Buffalo, New York, doing this interview, and it's the Sportscasters here with Dave Meltzer. Um, and the UFC is is huge everywhere, but it's not in New York. There've been some legal battles, and and they haven't been able to do a show in New York. What is the status of the legal battle between UFC and uh, New York State? Same as it's been for years. Um, the Senate passes the bill, and the Assembly stalls it, and that's. Doesn't we don't have any sense that that's going to change? Uh, the the culinary workers union is strong and uh, they've got enough votes, I guess, and to keep it from passing or to keep it. I you know it doesn't even go to a vote, so I shouldn't even say that to get it to keep it from even going to the Senate, to the assembly floor and, and getting voted on. So it's been that case for years. It's it makes absolutely no sense. I mean, there's you know I mean no no one's ever given me a valid reason that that you know for you know for it for um banning it i mean if you morally were opposed to boxing and you were morally opposed to mma that's fine i mean i can't argue that it's 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 tough sports and they are injurious sports and things like that if you've got that moral thing but but to me what you can't do is say boxing's fine or kickboxing's fine but mma that's violent because that's ridiculous because the fact is is that there's going to be more brain damage in boxing and there's going to be more brain damage in kickboxing for sure than there's ever going to be in mma so uh, you know, it, it, it's it's and that's that's what bothers me is is, is like in New York. I mean, one of the, it really bothered me is like even in the legislation that's passing, they have like a the, they currently have a three percent tax on boxing, and they were going to come in and and tax UFC something like eight percent, and it's like what's the why you know? And the thing is, is well, we need to have a low tax to get the best fights back to New York away from Las Vegas, and it's like. You know, it shouldn't it all be the same? I mean, like whatever it is, I don't care what the number is three or five or eight. It should be the same for everybody. I mean, they're 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 run by the same. It's the same commissions, so it's like if you're going to cut boxing a break, then you should cut MMA the same break. And it's instead, I have this feeling that you know, if MMA gets in, they're going to want to use like MMA to help fund, you know, the the regulation of boxing. And I don't think that's fair. You know, it's incredible incredible to me that they have this ongoing fight with UFC in the state of New York, and then they, the last show they did, the main event, 
both guys were basically Western New Yorkers, one from Rochester, New York, one from Niagara Falls, New York, John Jones and, and Evans. Uh, Jones won the fight. What's kind of the fallout from that, and where do both of these guys go from here? Well, we know John Jones is going to face Dan Henderson next. I have no idea where Rashad Evans goes from here. Uh, you know, he's just trying to get some wins back and, and get another shot at, at John Jones, but John Jones is going to be awfully tough to beat for anyone for a long, long time. Uh, maybe if he moves to heavyweight, uh, if things would be different, but uh, as a light heavyweight, uh, boy, oh boy, you know, he's, I just don't see, there's a lot of good light heavyweights. There's no other great light heavyweights. The best one, I think, is the, 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 the two ones that I thought would give him the most trouble were Evans, and, and he breezed through him, and Machida, and he breezed through him. Hmm. There's nobody else. I mean, you, you know, the next guy they're kind of, you know, pushing up. I mean, the people talked about Phil Davis, but Evans beat Phil Davis pretty handily. And then Alexander Gustafson, who's, um, you know, probably John Jones' equal when it comes to striking, but the reality is is that uh, John Jones can take him down and, and uh, beat him on beat him on the ground. So I don't see Gustafson having a, a good chance. And, and Gustafson's probably the, the next legitimate contender. And the rest of them, you know, you know, whoever they are that are out there, he's going to wax them all. So I, I see, um, you know, the only guy who can beat John Jones is John Jones. You know, uh, one guy that I've always really enjoyed at UFC has been on the shelf a while, and that's George St. Pierre. And he's had knee surgery. He's getting closer to coming back. What's the status of St. Pierre? He's supposed to come back in November, and uh, we'll see who he faces. Uh, I mean, still a while, huh? It's probably going to be Carlos Condit. Uh, if they can get Nick Diaz licensed, um, they could do a, a Diaz-Condit fight in Calgary. I mean, um, well, perhaps Calgary, perhaps uh, Denver, uh, August, September. And if they can do that, then then, then perhaps St. Pierre will face him. If St. Pierre faces um, Diaz, that's going to be one of the big fights of the year. Uh, really, really big. If he fights, if St. Pierre fights Condit, I mean, it'll be a big fight because it's St. Pierre, but it won't be anywhere close to the same level. You know, I asked you the same question with uh, the WWE, and that is, uh, you know, competition. And for UFC right now, it's it's only the the is it Bellator fighting championship, and they just took their top guy um, away from them. So, does UFC have any? Uh, challengers out there, and, and how does their product either suffer or improve without the competition? I don't think that the challenger for UFC makes a difference to UFC. Okay. To me, as a fan, I like the idea of two strong organizations. I liked it when Strike Force was independent. I thought it was it was good for the fighters because they kind of had another place to go. So for the fighters, it's um, you know, I mean, they can still make more money as long as business stays up. Uh, so it's not really like a, like bad for the fighters. Some people say it's, it's horrible; they can't play one against the other. But there was kind of UFC kind of had a salary structure in place, and then actually the structure's higher now, even when they purchased Strikeforce. So they haven't. So the fighters really haven't been hurt significantly. Uh, but I think as a fan, I, I like the idea of two different promotions. And Bellator, I watch Bellator, but you know I can tell you that uh, it's not getting the traction. And I mean I don't. I don't and it's, it's that's your answer right there is is the fans because I mean the fans don't watch it. That's the only reason why it's not it's not doing well. I mean uh, the shows are good, uh, the fighters are exciting, but uh, you you can't uh, you know people are gonna are gonna be interested in what they're gonna be interested in, and if they're not gonna be interested in it, you could have the greatest product in the world. They're just not gonna be interested in it. You know, I was talking to a friend who's a big UFC fan about this interview, and he said you got to ask Dave if they're any closer to kind of 
he thinks that they've been trying to shy away from pay-per-view and having their best fights on pay-per-view. And he thinks that, you know, it'd be great for the sport if they could get away from pay-per-view and get either, even if it was on to Showtime or HBO or, or maybe, you know, I know CBS has done some things and Fox has done some things. Where does, uh, where does the business model stand as far as maybe shying away from pay-per-view a little bit? Well, nothing until 2019 uh, uh, at oh, the earliest. Really? Wow. Um, because the way they're, they're, stru- they're structured, um, if they don't have pay-per-view, they're going to be losing lots of money. Um, there's no way to make up that money on free television. I mean, that's what people don't understand is the amount of money that you make on a pay-per-view versus free TV show is, is ridiculous, and you can't it, – it, it would kill your salary structure. I mean, they're, they're – they're, and people, like, talk about, like, they should give up pay-per-view and go to television. Well, look, they're going to make – they're on under contract until two thousand until the end of two thousand eighteen. And it's a fixed number. It's a hundred million dollars a year. Okay? They need probably three hundred million dollars a year to um to break even. that's probably about the number that they need. Okay. So they're gonna get a hundred million in um from, from from Fox for the various television shows. And then they can make, you know, fifty, seventy five million, whether it's video games, merchandise, television uh, you know, international rights, live gates, all that. Okay. So you can get that number up to 175, probably, um, maybe 200. Okay, but you need 300. So yeah, you can get away from pay per view and lose 100 million dollars a year and go out of business in two, three years. You can do that, but if you can't, if you don't got a better idea than that, you better keep doing your pay per views. And uh, if your pay per views are not your most exciting fights, then people will stop buying your pay per views, and that way you're going to cut off your nose anyway. So they cannot afford to change what they're doing until. 2019. I mean, and, and, and in 2019, it's going to be a different world anyway, and by then, we'll, right. you know, you can evaluate what you should do in 2019, and t- by, in 2017 or 2018, you can start figuring that out. Me, in 2012, I have no idea what the world's going to be like in 2019, so I'm just worried right now about, uh, you know, through 2014. 2014, they can't make it without pay-per-view in 2014. You know, uh, we mentioned maybe that WrestleMania three was maybe the peak of the WWE. It seems like for UFC there was UFC one hundred was so big it got so much uh, media attention from even non UFC outlets. What's their next kind of really really big show? Do you see um, and who headlines it? They're looking at July seventh with Chelsea and Anderson Silva. I mean that's what they want to be the real big one. I don't know. I don't even think as big as UFC one hundred, but you never know because it's. Again, you know, it's, it's all about momentum and things like that. And Chael Sonnen's a phenomenal talker, and Anderson Silva's a phenomenal fighter. So it's, it's going to be a big one. But their idea, the idea they're going with, and, and few people know this, and, and it could change because it's not, like, written down in stone, but they want to duplicate WrestleMania. And, you know, WWE does WrestleMania every end of March, early April. They want to do their WrestleMania the July 4th weekend every year in Las Vegas. That's the idea. Uh, this year being the first one. And uh, so there you go. That's awesome. All right, uh, the sportscasters are here with Dave Meltzer. It's been a real honor, someone who I've been reading since I was seven years old, literally. And I just want to ask you one last thing. You know, in a couple of weeks, we're going to be lucky enough to have Frank DeFord on our podcast. Oh, my God. Yeah. Frank DeFord's like my idol. Yeah, I know. He's ours, too, and it's such an honor. And I know you were at the National and work for Frank. Do you have a story or something that you maybe can share with us about your time at the National and working with Frank? He was just the most awesome, awesome person to work with that there was. I mean, I can't, I can't say. I mean, you know, people can read his stuff and see what a writing talent he was. But just as far as a, 
someone to work for. Oh my God! I mean, of all people I've ever worked for in my life, he's heads and shoulders above every one of them. Just, I mean, and 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 you know, I mean, I was a complete unknown nobody, and he had a writing staff at the National filled with stars, and he treated me like I was one of them, and I'll never forget that. I got. You know, plus me and him are both old-time roller derby fans, so we got something in common there too. That's awesome. You know, I asked someone this last week, and, and they were kind of on the fence. But do you? I'm, I'm going to guess. I think I know the answer. But do you think Frank DeFord is the best sports writer of all time? Uh, I think he's the best of our time. I can't judge that because I haven't. I didn't read guys in their era. You know, like the other guys that would be famous. You know, or your Damon Runyon or Grantland Rice. Okay. I mean, I know the names, but I didn't read them in their era, so I can't compare them. But of the guys that I've read, yes, I would say so. All right, this has been such an honor. I really appreciate it. I, I can't plug a Twitter because you're not there, but why don't you give us everything where people can find you out there on the Internet where they can read your stuff and things like that. Okay, well, go to www.wrestlingobserver.com, and it's um, you know it's the, the website and everything like that. And then uh, part of the website, I do a weekly newsletter, which is where like all the news of MMA and pro wrestling that we get comes out and we have you know update daily updates and i do uh radio shows with brian alvarez uh four times a week so uh sometimes sometimes more like this week there's new, a lot of news there's even more awesome thank you so much really appreciate this and i uh, hope i brought it a little bit for you okay thanks okay. very much thanks appreciate man. it yeah i appreciate All it right, bye All right, I want to thank Dave Meltzer for making his Sportscasters debut. That was fun. Every once in a while, it's fun to talk wrestling. And you know what? Anyway, we should do a little bit more UFC. I think we kind of underrate that. You know, we kind of look at it like there's the four main sports, right? The hockey, baseball, football, basketball. We kind of grew up with that. What's the fifth sport right now, in your opinion, Don? Is it UFC? It could be. I mean, is that bigger than... The problem is the lack of a... Uh... I mean, hockey probably isn't four for everybody. No, But right. it's four for us. We're a northeastern city that loves hockey. and Right, and I mean, if you're not going to talk like worldwide like soccer and stuff like that, it's probably golf or NASCAR. Okay. And the reason I say that is because you can turn on ABC or whatever channels. Uh, who does golf? What does golf do? NBC, right? Well, they're on... NBC and CBS. Okay, and CBS. even NBC sometimes. Okay, but you can turn on the the big three channels and right. watch golf. You can't really do that with the UFC. They did that a little bit with Strike Force and CBS, and they went away from that. And that's that's part of the problem. I talked to you last week off the air after the show. If you watched any of that fight, and it's just a matter of you got to watch pay per views and or go to Buffalo Wild Wings. Yeah, or and that's like what's that. kept me away from being a bigger UFC fan. Is I did it for a bunch of years with wrestling, and it sucks. It, Look, at, we're not rich guys by any means. It's tough to justify 60 bucks a month extra in your budget yeah. for a fight every month. At least wrestling has the regular shows, too. And I guess I guess the UFC does, too. But, I mean, it's different to watch. And it sucks to miss the main match. Right, yep. You know, it sucks to, like, even with the WWE, it sucks to watch Monday Night Raw for a month and be a part of the buildup of, you know, <laughs> right. Cena versus Lesnar and then not be a part of the match and pay-per-view. Right, and so. the Bones Jones is arguably maybe the best ever at his weight class, and you probably didn't see it if you didn't And he's from he's from where we are. Right. You know, and usually we go nuts about 
athletes who are yeah, from where yeah. we are. And the main fight was two guys from Western New York. I think part one of the, Rochester, one Niagara Falls. Part of the problem with that might be that New York still doesn't allow. Yeah, UFC. and we talked about that with Malta yeah. too. So, all right. So, uh, thanks for Richard Deitch for being on the show today. Thanks for Matt Crossman. Thanks for Dave Melter. Thanks for Doug Farrar for being on our Football Nation podcast, which you can find at www.footballnation.com. Uh, it's the Sportscasters and Football Nation podcast. Uh, also, make sure you check out Don's blog from night one of the NFL draft. Find that at the sportscasters.blogspot.com. You can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash the sportscasters. Find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters. Email us sportscasters at gmail.com and find all that on our website, www.sports-casters.com. All right. Last piece of business for today is pick four. Uh, we went four and four last week as a team, two yeah. and two each. Uh, I had the Rangers over the Sens and Caps over the Bruins, won both my hockey games. We both lost Philip uh, Philip um, Holmner, uh, pitched a perfect game, and then got blown out by the Red Sox yeah, down to three. So we both missed that one. Uh, I had uh, Richard scoring the game-winning goal in Game 7. It was actually Dan Girardi. Uh, you, on the other hand, won your bold prediction of Stephen Gilmore being the 10th pick by the Bills. And also won the Rangers over the Senators, as I did. Uh, you lost Philip Palmer, and you lost uh, the Bruins over the Capitals. All right, let's get right back into the hockey. Uh, Blues at the Kings, Game 3. We talked about a little bit earlier about how the West seems like it might be over. I'm going to say that it is, and uh, I'm going to keep rolling with the Kings. That's Game 3, Thursday night on NBC Sports Network. The reason I picked this as a game of the week is because it's really the entire season for a team who just missed out on the president's trophy and the president's trophy team is gone already yep so this is a huge game for the blues if they want to get into this series they have to win it if they if they don't it's done i think it's done i think the kings get to go home they get to go to that crowd i think jonathan quick is where he needs to be do you realize that the kings have made this run and jeff court jeff carter just scored his first goal in the playoffs in the last game they played He's he's not a, not a clutch player. So I mean, if he is going to be more of a factor now, Kopitar looked great. Yeah, look out. That, that's a solid team from top to bottom. I like the Kings. Um, my host choice. I'm going to skip the pitcher just because we're going to stick with the hockey here. Um, the other hockey series out west: Coyotes at Nashville. I'm going to go against. I know we've said those series are done. I picked Nashville before the series starts. I guess I'm just banking on them not getting swept here in a home game. Uh, I'm going to take Nashville, Game 3, Wednesday night on CNBC. Gutsy pick without Radulov and Kostitsa. Yeah. All right, I'm going to take Game 3 of the Heat and the Knicks series. Uh, I'm going to say that one's over, too. <laughs> the Knicks are going to be without Amari Stoudemire. It's going to hurt them. And the Heat have looked great. And I think the Heat are poised to make a really, really deep run, possibly all the way to winning the championship this year. So I'm going to take the Heat over the Knicks on Thursday at 7-10 on TNT. I'm going to say this. The thing I hate the most about the basketball playoffs is I have no idea what channel the games are on. When I like, it's such, Is it going to be on ESPN? Is it going to be on TNT? Is it going to be on a network? It drives me nuts. And maybe someone who doesn't like hockey as much as we do has that same, same problem, problem with hockey. hockey. But uh, like, I never watch TNT, so I don't know what channel that is on the dial even. <laughs> so it's like i got to find it, and it's a pain in the ass. But uh, I'm going to pick the Heat over in the Knicks. All right, my winning pitcher this week, who I hope is a winning pitcher because I should be better at this, but I've only been 2-2. Two and two. Same here. Uh, I'm going to go with Jake Westbrook, uh, the Cardinals pitcher. He's pitching against the Pirates on Thursday at 1.45 p.m. Uh, he's pitching against Eric Bedard, who's got a decent ERA and not a decent record. 
the crazy thing about the Pirates this year is if you watch their losses, they're all really, really close. They're actually third in the league in ERA. Wow. They're 30th in the league in runs, four. Hmm. So, I mean, these guys are getting killed. Uh, they're not getting any run support. I guess I'm going to assume that that continues, and I'm going to take Westbrook and the Cardinals. You know, I've got off to a great start in this. I was 2-0. and but Now I've lost the last two. I want to get back into my winning ways, so I'm going to use a big gun. I'm going to pick David Price. He's got five decisions already, which is a wow. lot. Yeah. You know, He's 4-1 and one with a 2.87 ERA. He plays at home against Oakland, who's got one of the worst lineups in in the majors. And Tyson Ross is going to start for them. He's one and one with a six point four eight ERA. This game's on Friday at seven ten. It's on the Sun Network. If you get that, it's a regional sports network. But uh, I'm going to take David Price in the race over Oakland. Now you mentioned his five his five decisions. That Eric Bedard from the Pirates has five decisions. He's got a two point four eight ERA, a one and four record. Wow! <laughs> like if he had. 20 wins by the end of this season with a 2.480 ERA. He'd be in the discussion for Cy Young. Yeah. Uh, Eric Bedard's got some skill. Yeah, it's just a strange, strange year for the Pirates. My bold prediction this week, I'm going to continue to ride uh, hockey and hopefully, well, I'm not in the bold prediction department, but I'm going to continue to ride the Kings specifically. I'm going to say they sweep that series. So I'm kind of just doubling down on my game of the week pick and saying it's over in four. Yeah, I'm going to do a similar thing. I'm going to take the Coyotes. Uh, I know you have the Predators in Game 3, but I think you made that pick before you knew Radulov and Kostitsin were out. Yeah, maybe. And maybe you wouldn't do it <laughs> if you had another chance at it. Uh, I just... I'm rooting for my pre-series Here, pick, Here's I the guess. thing that could go against me is that Pekka Rene is really good, and he could steal a game yeah, easily. That's true. Yep. And he could steal two. This, if Pekka Rene gets his game back, this could be 2-2, two to two, but it's about being bold. So I'm going to say that the Coyotes are going to go into Nashville... Win both games and sweep that. I don't think we talked about it too much. We don't have to talk about it a lot now, but how are the Coyotes doing it? Like I, I don't watch a lot of the Coyotes, well, but a team with no owner. They have a really good system. Yeah, I guess it's – who's their coach over there? It's uh, t- uh, t- Is it Dave Tibbet? Oh, is it? Okay. Is that his name? I mean, um, he should be up for – I know the coach of the year and all those awards are for he's the not reg- one of regular them. season. Yeah. But, I mean, man, he's that team has been excellent. I, th- I think – did he win it? Yeah, it's Dave Tippett. And he either won it last year. Or was uh, nominate, nominated, nominated last year. Yeah. Uh, but look, at he's got a great system. Mike Smith has been really good in goal for That's them. That's true. That's probably one Steve Eiserman would like to have back. Cause, oh, yeah. That's yeah, right. Um, they had a really tough season with goalies in Tampa. Probably why they didn't make the playoffs this year. So Mike Smith has been good. The system is good. And they've gotten goal scoring from a lot of people. And they've won overtime games. I mean, that's why they yeah, beat seven, right? Yeah, that's why. Or, they, I mean, all seven went to overtime in the first series. That's why they beat Chicago. So, um, all seven were one goal games. Not oh, okay, okay. But uh, yeah, that's how they're doing it. So I like the Coyotes, and uh, I had a great, I had a lot of fun doing this show today. Again, we want to thank Richard Deitch, Matt Crossman, Dave Meltzer. You can find it www.sports-casters.com. Don, cue the hip. All right.